They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. Podcast with your host, Juan Ayala. Prepare to have your mind blown. Welcome back to another episode of the Juan Juan Podcast. I'm your host as always, Juan. And today we have HP Shovecraft, the hair, the myth, the legend. What's up, bro? What's happening, man? How you been? Not much, dude. I've been hanging out, man. I'm excited to get into this. But before we do that, I want to give thanks to our newest patron, Roving Sage Media. Shout out to you, person. I don't know if you're man, woman, non-binary, whatever you are. But shout out to you and thank you for the support. Also, make sure to check me out on Rockfin now. Make sure to check me out on YouTube. Make sure to check me out on Instagram. All the goodness. And the Patreon, patreon.com slash the101podcast. Rockfin.com slash the101podcast. We're doing it up. We're doing it up. Shout out to Sam Tripley for hooking me up and Mark for making that happen as well for my family because I'm crazy. Sammy T. That's right. So before we get into it, do you happen to know the hymn to Pam, uh, to Pan by Crowley? Yes, I do. I actually, I was going to uh, have it set up so I could recite it if you wished, but I have to, I have to pull it up. I wanted to do a one-on-one podcast version of that. But how does it go? Like, welcome to the Juan on Juan podcast, and here we are. Uh, whatever. Who, who, who the fuck cares? All right, let's let's see. Hang on. Let me uh, let me let me work one real quick. Oh, that is terribly small text. That's not it. These sons of bitches. Bro, you, you aren't you like supposed to have this like already like tattooed on your forearm? Isn't that what you guys do? You guys I'm not a thelemite, man. I, just, oh, I thought you I, were. No, I find Crowley interesting. I'm a Discordian and a subgenius. You know that. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. also a dudist, as the uh, the sweater will let you know. No, I collect fake religions, and Thelema is technically a real one. No, it's a movement for the people. It's a movement to empower man. 
and to it's a break to, free from the from the establishment, right? It's a movement to empower the masters, but uh, as we all know, Crowley believed that slaves will always serve. So, but Crowley said a whole bunch of shit that he later redacted, and like <laughs> in the at the end of the day, Crowley really just you know he had a couple good points and a couple solid yeah. things, but more or less he was just a drug fiend that loved living a hedonistic lifestyle. Which I mean, you know, if that's what you're gonna do, do it. But yeah. Do you have it pulled up yet? I do have it pulled up. So we've got, uh, oh, God, I can't even fucking. All right. <clears throat> Thrill with lissom lust of light, oh, man, oh, man. Come careening out of the night, oh, pan, oh, pan, eopan, eopan. Come over the sea from Sicily and from Arcady, roaming as Bacchus with fawns and pards and nymphs and satyrs for thy guards. On a milk-white ass, come over the sea. Talk to me, talk to me. Come with Apollo in bridal dress, shepherdess and pythoness. Come with Artemis silken shroud and wash thy white thigh, beautiful god. In the moon of the woods and a marble mount, the dimpled dawn of the ample fawn. Dip the purple passionate prayer in the crimson shrine, the scarlet snare. The soul that startles in eyes of blue to watch the wantons weeping through. The tangled grove, the gnarled bowl, O living tree that is spirit and soul. And body and brain come over the sea. Eopan, Eopan. Devil or God, to me, to me. Miman, Miman. Come with trumpets sounding shrill over the hill. Come with drums low muttering from the spring. Come with flute and come with pipe. Am I not ripe? Oh, you are ripe, you smell. I who wait and writhe and wrestle with air and no hath no bows to nestle. My body weary of empty clasps, strong as a lion, sharp as an asp. Come, oh come, I am numb with the lust of devildom. Thrustly my sword through the galling fetter, all devour, all begetter. Give me the sign of the open eye, token erect of thorny thigh, the world of madness and mystery. O pan, o pan, eopan, eopan, pan, 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 I am a man. Do as thou wilt, as a great god can. O pan, eopan. O Pan, O Pan, I am awake in the grip of the snake. The eagle slashes with beak and claw. The gods withdraw. The great beasts come. O Pan, I am born to death on the horn of the unicorn. I am Pan, Eopan, Eopan, Pan, Pan. I am thy maze, I am thy man. Goat of the flock, I am gold, I am god. Flesh to my bone, flower to thy rod. With hoots of steel I race on the rocks. Through solstice, stubborn to equinox, and I rave, and I rape, and I rip, and I rend, everlasting world without end, mankind, maiden, maynard, man, in the night of Pan, Eopan, Eopan, Pan, Eopan. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen, just in case we conjured up anything. So. Yeah, I don't have my, uh, my, my fucking Tibetan singing bowls over there, so if I get sleep paralysis again tonight, that's on me. So if, if you guys haven't noticed by the title of this episode and my attire for those watching on YouTube, I am wearing my NASA shirt, my what is it, Strange Angel inspired Dark Angel glasses. Or Dark Strange Angel. Angel, yeah, yeah, Strange. Dark Angel was that Jessica Alba shirt. Yes. Show. And my ISS hat because without the person that we're going to be talking about today, these things probably would not exist. Arguably would not exist, right? And we're going to be talking about the one and only Jack Parsons, because I wouldn't say he is my favorite person in history, but he's definitely a slept on person, a historical figure. 
a lot of a lot of people don't really recognize him and his contributions to modern day rocketry. And I'm not gonna say favor. I'm gonna say the one of the people I find most interesting for sure in in history, right? One of the the probably one of the greatest occultists as well, next to Alistair Crowley or Crowley or Cuckley, whichever you prefer. And today we're gonna be getting into his life's work, his early years. We're gonna be talking about the Theodore von Karman, JPL, Caltech, the OTO, Crowley, Parsons Double Life, the Parsonage, L. Ron Hubbard, Enochian Magic, the Babylon Working, and then Parsons' final years and death. And I wanted to encourage people on next week. Today is Friday, April Fools, April 1st. All hail Discordia. All hail Discordia, 538. 5.39 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And on Thursday, April 7th, I will be going on the Interverse podcast in a roundtable to break down the symbolism further uh, from... We're going to have Slick Dissident there. We're going to have Kaylee. We're going to have Chance. We're going to have a, a, a roundtable that we're going to break down things a little bit further. And this you can use this as a compendium, if you will, to introduce you to his life and what he was about. And I'm going to save some fire things for that live stream it's going to be live stream on youtube and rockfin and i'm going to save some things for there but i'm going to be introducing a lot of ideas and a lot of connections that we've made even with the last episode that me and anton did with hp lovecraft we're going to be connecting some dots there there are a lot of similarities a there lot are of similarities quite they were in the same circle yeah absolutely yeah and apparently i think parsons also met manly p hall yes yeah so interesting let's get into have a little introduction here so Rocket scientist by day, occultist by night, the infamous father of modern-day rocketry, John Parsons, who would invoke Pan, the wild horn god of fertility, before each rocket test, the beautifully done hymn that Mr. Anton did for us here at the beginning. I don't know what to call you, the Reverend Kaiju Diggit or H.P. Shuffcraft. Reverend or Kaiju works. I mean, I'm, I'm on with a fellow uh, subgenius and Fnordicrucian. So, <laughs> so he, he would invoke this hymn every single time that he would do a rocket test. And some of my sources for this episode were a couple of books here. We have Strange Angel, The Otherworldly Life of Rocket Scientist John Whiteside Parson. We have Sex Magicians, The Lives of Spiritual Practices of Pashaw Beverly Randolph, Alistair Crowley, Jack Parsons, Marjorie Cameron, Anton LaVey, and others by Michael William West. I also read the book by... Let me pull it up here real quick. It Sex and Rockets, the Occult World of, I believe it was Parsons, I think. Uh, Sex, and, Sex and Rockets, which I believe Anton Wilson was on there, right? What was, what was his name? Was that Robert his name? Anton Wilson. I was actually going to say, too, when we were talking about, uh, in the beginning, all of the various labels that Jack Parsons has. Uh, Jack Parsons is actually Robert Anton Wilson's favorite libertarian author of the 21st mm -hmm. century. There's a really good uh, video that I recommend for everybody uh, where uh, Wilson is talking about Parsons and Crowley. And, and yeah, I saw that one. It's so good. It's like only about an hour long. It's a quick watch. So Yeah, and I read, uh, I listened to a handful of lectures as well. And also one more book to add to the fire that I reference to was the rocket man section by uh, secret societies and psychological warfare by michael hoffman which he is going to be on the show soon so shout nice. out to mr hoffman he is an og and so yeah that's what i referenced a lot of things and obviously 
Wikipedia and trust me, bro, because that's that's where we're all about, right? So, how I said earlier, rocket scientist by day, occultist by night. He would invoke Pan every time they would do a, a rocket test. His dabbling in the occult has overshadowed his greatest achievements in the field of rocket science. He would become one of the one of the leading pioneers of rocket science, transforming it to what we know it as today. And we have Parsons was said, by, I believe, by Von Karman, Van Karman, that he was the, the, the third most important person in the development of rocketry because by, by the time that they were introducing this, it was considered science fiction. Science fiction, which is the, the, the genre that was being developed at the time. So whenever you would bring up this whole launching rockets or missiles or something, they would just, oh, you're, you're, you know, are you, well, they, you're a little kid. They talk about that a lot in Strange Angel, how rocketry was considered obsolete warfare tech. Because, I mean, rockets have been being used since, you know, like the third dynasty in, in China when they, they figured out how to <clears throat> make black powder together and, and use it to create rocket-powered arrows. So it, it, it wasn't thought of in terms of space travel or even weaponry, at least advanced weaponry at that point in time. It was thought of just to be like, you know, a, a horde of longbowmen where you're like, it's a fucking thing of the past. Nobody cares. It's just, yeah. just stupid. And then, yeah, of course, the, 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 the shot to the moon was considered science fiction and just utter fantasy at the time. And I watched a few episodes of that show on uh, Paramount TV. Is that is that the one? Paramount Plus? Something like that? The where... Parsons one? Yeah. Okay. I think it's on Paramount Plus or something. I watched a few episodes, but, you know, with these shows, how I had told you, Anton, they, they really portray these people in a different light. And I oh, didn't sure. I didn't feel like it would contribute to my research at all. So the hours that I was going to pour into that, I'd rather just spend it reading an actual biography of the man yeah. instead of, you know, some story. Because it, they, they fluff it up and they make him look better. than He was probably a piece of shit. I mean, let's let's get to the core of it. You know, they, they, they did a lot of things that we know about behind closed doors and things that we don't know about. So it's safe to say that he was a piece of shit, just like Crowley. So... Yeah. When Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, a lot of credit for that must be given to Parsons, which they did name a crater after him on the dark side of the moon. Appropriate. Jack, yeah, appropriate. Yeah. Jack Whiteside Parsons has a crater named after him on the dark side of the moon. Just how they named a feature on Pluto after H.B. Lovecraft's mm -hmm. Cthulhu, if those who recall from the episode that me and Anton did. Another fun thing about Parsons uh, and, a, and a cool connection is that he was actually pen pals with Werner von Braun back when von Braun was still in Germany pre-Nazi uh, Germany, like back in the 20s and the 30s, yes. as uh, von Braun's only like two years older than uh, Jack Parsons was. Mm-hmm. A lot of these individuals that are attributed to great discoveries in, in the sciences in the sciences were mythics. Yeah, They're, John were, D. Were, um, were mystics. Uh, I'm sorry, Newton. They were all they all got their basis and start in alchemy and astrology, and then it, it it progressed. Which I mean, it could be if you look at it from just a logical, non mystical point of view. That's the areas that you know the childlike mind would be more drawn to is is the mystical aspect of it, and then as you progress and you get older, you go into the more technical, like logical aspects of it. Or it you know could be totally ooky spooky. So so we have these mystics right of ancient, not ancient but older, earlier history. We have Leonardo da Vinci. We have Isaac Newton, mm -hmm. Gottfried Leibniz. We have Charles Babbage, and even arguably the founding fathers were also mystics. Uh, they were known; Mason, they were so, yeah. all known to be part of secret societies and occult circles. And Jack was also a mystic, and at one point the leader of Crowley's Ordo Templi Orientis, also known as the OTO. 
which we will be getting into a brief history of them later on. Was it the Agape uh, Lodge was the name of yes. uh, 1003 Orange Grove? Dude, there's a there's a Trader Joe's and a Taco Bell near there now. And I'm like, oh, man, that place <laughs> used to be fucking loaded with millionaires. but It used to be lit. So yeah. we have Parsons had four different what I call alternate egos, if you will. The number four symbolizing a lot of things. Scientists call him John Parsons. Occultists call him Jack Parsons. His followers in the libertarian and anarchist movements called him John Whiteside Parsons, but his actual legal name since the very beginning was Marvel Whiteside mm -hmm. Parsons. And I want to note here, because a lot of these guys, right, a lot of these occultists, I feel like they're living in a story, if you will. Like, they're living fiction, and, they, and they, they bring it forth into reality. And if you haven't checked out my episode number 80, Transmuting Fiction into Reality, they did this a lot of the times with the movies of the Transformers. They would film these movies on the actual place that they were talking about. Again, in this weird occultic alchemical thing where they present this fictional story, but in a real life place. And during his time at Gausset, which would later become JPL, Parsons and his colleague Frank Molina would write a novel with a quote-unquote anti-war plot that was supposed to serve as a script for a movie later on. It is a story loosely based on himself while trying to stop one of uh, loosely based Sorry, loosely based on them, but I wanted to point out that Parsons' character in the story blows himself up while trying to stop one of his experiments. This was written 15 years before Parsons would meet his end the same exact way. Did he predict his own death? In this story, they also predicted the extradition of one of their team members. They had a Chinese individual yes. on their team member, on their on their team. And ironically enough, their systems would be used for war. This being one of their biggest fears. So that Chinese guy, um, eventually, well, I mean, I don't know if we're going to touch on him later or not, but he grew to absolutely despise the West because the American government treated him like a fucking spy, treated him like shit, yeah. ended up revoking his clearance and deporting him, and then he became the head of the ICBM program in China. Like, Chairman oh, Mao, shit. he used to give Chairman Mao fucking science lessons. Whoa, seriously? Absolutely, yeah, that was in Strange Angel, the book. Um, they talk oh. about, like, yeah, dude, shit's fucking nuts. Uh, Mao liked him so much that he was like, can you tutor me? That's wild, yeah. bro, because maybe none of that would ever happen if it wasn't for this guy being extradited. Yeah. China might not have fucking, like, that's one of those creating your own enemy type thing. It's yeah. like, like what America's really good at is is arming our own boogeymen. That's, that's crazy, bro. I did not make that connection. Yeah. But on this episode, we will be calling him Parsons or Jack when necessary. We'll be, we will be diving down the rabbit hole of his weird, crazy, magical, sex-crazed life. And when I think of Parsons, and I think of Crowley, and I think of all these occultists of, of, of back then, I got two words for you, Anton. Two words. Hit me. Dick jokes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> this episode will be packed with dick jokes because this is what these guys were doing. They were they were doing the solo act of invoking things through masturbation. So Parsons was doing sex that. magic too. So was Crowley, though. It wasn't just solo shit. Oh yeah, no, they were having sex with each other. They were having sex with with animals. They were doing it all, bro. They were just fucking everybody. Their well, moms, so <laughs> everything, bro. They were doing it all. Okay. So part of and they they actually uh, there's there's rumors of that where it was like Parsons maybe fucked his mom and it's like ah maybe I don't know maybe I don't know maybe about we'll that. get into that we'll get into that so. The early years, 1914 to 1936, is what we'll be covering. So Jack's father, Marvel H. Parsons, was from the Boston area, born in 1894, to an egg merchant. And I, I put in here, keep that in mind for later, which I'll be presenting my evidence for, for the egg thing on the April 7th stream. 
And also notice the HP, just like HP Lovecraft, mm -hmm. HP Blavatsky, Manly P. Hall. And it's what some would come to call a mantle or a title for high priest or high priestess. And it equals 87 in Gematria, which I'm also working on something for that. So I was able to trace... What the hell is my cursor here? I was able to trace the Parsons family lineage to the 1600s. He was related to a cornet Joseph Parsons. And I'm talking about... Uh, uh, a senior, okay, Marvel senior. Uh, he was related to a cornet, Joseph Parsons, which was one of the founders of Springfield and Northampton, Massachusetts. Joseph was also a wealthy businessman and landowner. And I'm talking about the great, 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 it's like eight generations, great, 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 great grandfather. Uh, and also his wife, right? This was the most interesting part. Mary Bliss Parsons was tried for witchcraft in the mid to late 1600s. So the name Parsons can be considered quote unquote magical. Hence why when uh, John, Jack's mother broke, uh, you know, divorced her, his father, she kept the last name Parsons. Okay. So again, that, that's just something to keep in mind. After Marvel Sr. realized that working for his father selling eggs would not cut it, he moved to California in 1913 to Los Angeles, which translates to those angels. Also keep that in mind for the live stream on April 7th. Senior met Ruth Virginia Whiteside, which Michael Hoffman stated that she was an occultist or related to an uh, occultic family, which I wasn't able to dig anything up on that. But that's just what he said in his book, uh, uh, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. So shout out to Michael Hoffman. So going uh, back when, to uh, the, the the relative who was tried for witchcraft, do we have any information as to whether or not she was convicted or if she was? Yes, she was convicted and sentenced to 10 years, I believe 10 weeks or 10 months, something like that. And the people who convicted her were the originals of the Salem witch trials. Okay. Really? Yes. So that's dude, it? Yes. 10 weeks? That's it? I, I have to dig it up, but I believe it was either 10 months or 10 weeks, something like that. But she I, was convicted. I yes. witchcraft was automatic death. I thought so too, but again, th these were influential people. You got to understand that. So they were okay, talking about sense, poltergeist yeah. activity and all this craziness and just evil, bad energies wherever she was. It's, it's a long story, but again, uh, feel for those interested, feel free to dig into. Her name was Mary Bliss Parsons, and she was considered the witch of, I believe it was Northampton. So you can Google that and dive down that wormhole if you'd like. So after they move to... When he arrived in California, he met Ruth Virginia Whiteside, and they married shortly after. Marvel Sr. and Ruth gave birth to their son on October 2nd, 1914, and named him Marvel Whiteside Parsons. He was their second child and the first having died at birth or at infancy. We, we're not sure. During this time, Marvel had an affair leading Ruth to divorce him, but there is evidence that it was never truly a divorce, but rather a separation. Mm -hmm. She was very bitter about the affair and began calling Jr., Jack, John rather than Marvel. Okay. And there's a lot of names going around. So again, John is Jack Parsons growing up. Everyone would begin to call him Jack, but she kept the last name Parsons again, perhaps due to its magical attributes and coincidence or not Charles Taze Russell, the leader of the Russellites or better known as the Jehovah's Jehovah's witnesses predicted the end of the world would happen on October 2nd, 1914. And I think I, did I get that wrong? Might have gotten that wrong. The day of Jack of John Parsons' birth and just a couple months after the start of World War One, which happened in July 28th of 1914. And I don't know if I got this excerpt correct because, again, I didn't have time to proofread, but I'll go back later and 
whatever. Anyways, he said that the, the end of the world would come and it just so happened to be, it was, I don't know if it was 1914, but it was the same day of Parsons' birth on October 2nd. So when Marshall, uh, when Russell announced to his congregation that the end had begun, he meant the, the finale was not an instant end to all things, but rather the beginning of the end, like it is outlined in the book of Revelation. In this book, you have the appearance of the Antichrist, the harlot, Babylon the Great, being two of the key events. And ironically enough, John Parsons would later attempt to incarnate Babylon and would also sign an oath stating he was the Antichrist. So attempt is a, is a strong word. I mean, in Parsons' mind, he did it. Yes. He did it successfully. And then yes. that was his last wife. Mm-hmm. 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 Absolutely. Which we'll be touching on her later on in this presentation. So we have here, by the year 1950, Jack's father was out of the picture for good. Some people say he died later on in, I believe it was the 40s or something, 41 or something. Well, he was but constantly he... writing letters back to uh, Jack's mother and basically begging. Like he, he would fluctuate between begging her for forgiveness and telling her that she was being ridiculously unreasonable because uh, he's, he would be like, did you think that I loved that woman? What kind of man would love a whore? And she's just like, dude, I don't care. Just go the fuck away. So uh, Jack and his mother would later go on to live with his grandparents, Walter H. Walter H. and Carrie Whiteside in Pasadena in 1916. Pasadena, home of the Rose, the Rosicrucians. Mm -hmm. So Walter Whiteside was a successful man, president of two manufacturing companies. They would all live at 537 South Orange Grove. Coincidentally enough, his life would end just blocks away from where he grew up. Okay. And I believe this, they called this the Millionaire's Mile or some shit like that. Millionaire Row, I believe, was what they called it. But yeah, something, something like that. Because like it was just nothing but fucking McMansions everywhere. Yeah. And here we have, according to John, his mother ingrained a hatred for him, for his father in him. And again, note the correlation between H.P. Lovecraft and Jack Parsons, mm -hmm. the absent father figure. The and his grandfather being that father figure that he was looking for. According to John, his mother ingrained a, ingrained a hatred for his father in him. He would later go on to write in his essay, Analysis by a Master of the Temple, written in third person. He writes, this is quote, Your father separated from your mother in order that you might grow up with a hatred of authority and a spirit of revolution necessary to my work. The Oedipus complex was needed to formulate the love of witchcraft, which would lead you into magic with a K. With the influence for your grandfather active to prevent too much complete an identification with your mother. So this dude, he, you know, later on we'll, we'll get into it, but he was pretty much, you know, an Oedipus complex is when you're in love with your mother pretty much. And and, and I think I've, I've heard it before. I don't know if it was Floyd or Young that said that every child, every male child at one point in his life is in love with his mother. That's Freud. And, That's yeah. Freud's That's whole Freud, thing right? was uh, do coke and fuck your mom. <laughs> Jesus. Seriously, like like Freud was a massive cokehead, and uh, it basically was just like pushing his edible complex and everybody else. It's like, dude, just because you want to bone your mom doesn't mean everyone does. Yeah, it doesn't mean everybody wants to bone <laughs> your mom. So, again, just keep that in mind because that plays a role later on. Of his child, he, he wrote, Your isolation as a child developed the necessary background of literature and scholarship, and the unfortunate experience with other children developed the requisite contempt for the crowd and for the group mores. You will note these factors developed the needful hatred for Christianity at an early age. So this is a guy who fucking hated Christianity. And, and one of the, the ads that he put out to recruit people to come live at the parsonage was, must not believe in God. You know, yeah. at the very end, like, must not believe in God. So, again... 
in in a book that he wrote later on in the book this is the title the book of antichrist written by him before his essay analysis by a master of the temple jack alleges to have invoked satan at the age of 13 cowering in fear when he appeared this event would have occurred in late 1927 or sometime in 1928 his reasoning for the invocation was not given but it may have had to do with his problems with other children so i guess he was bullied and that's how he met foreman uh but Again, he was a, tr a troubled kid, right? Fucked up, if, especially if you're trying well, to invoke Satan. So he wasn't Satan. necessarily bullied because he was a troubled kid. He was a nerd. Um, he was a nerd. Yeah, he <laughs> was He was a well-dressed, polite nerd. And all the kids fucking teased him relentlessly because it was the early 1900s. And if you weren't, you know, it, w it was, you know, prison rules. The biggest kid in the playground was, you know, the top dog. I wanted to note the similarity with... Uh, he said that he, this is something that he said he would never attempt to do again. Now, Charles Babbage, the father of modern day computers, mm -hmm. also tried to invoke Satan as well. Because mm -hmm. his whole thing was he was trying to prove the existence of God through technology. So again, there's correlation here with these great people in history, which Parsons later goes on to compare himself to certain people throughout history. Uh, again, Charles Babbage tried to do the same thing. You can look this up and Google it. Also... This was the year that The Call of Cthulhu was published, 1928. So, oh, no shit. I correlated that with perhaps, right, perhaps I believe that Crowley was in touch with another entity as well under the name Tulu. So who knows if this Cthulhu or Thulu, whatever, however the fuck you say it. Uh, it's not supposed was to this, be pronounceable by human tongue. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Daddy. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, he was, again, who knows if he was in touch with the same entity. Again, that's just uh, an idea that we've been tossing around, but it was 1928, the year that the Call of Cthulhu was created and published. Around this time, he would meet his lifelong friend. And I put friends here. Let me edit this real quick. Friend Edward S. Foreman. They would go both on to share the same interest in Pulp Fiction and in Rockets. And one thing I wanted to note, that they were both enjoyed reading the works of Jules Verne, mm -hmm. especially from The Earth to the Moon and Hugo Gernsback's new magazine of science fiction called Amazing Stories. Check this out. Gernsback, being one, being one who purchased a color out of space from H.P. Lovecraft in 1927 and published it in this very magazine, Amazing Stories. No shit. So, yeah, so it's alleged, you know, it's thought that Parsons might have read this book. He might have read the story. Of it's entirely Colorado possible. Yeah, if, he entirely was, if he was a reader of Pulp Fiction, then yeah, it, it's, I would say, likely that he stumbled across Lovecraft's work at some point. Yeah, 100%. I think that they did, and they, they were involved with the same people. Mm -hmm. We have here Parsons and Foreman would go on to blow off fireworks in Parsons' backyard, and in 1928, they began to experiment with small, solid fuel, rock, uh, solid fuel rockets. Parsons' backyard was full of burn spots from this and craters and shit. So, similarly to Lovecraft, Parsons' adult male role model, which I mentioned earlier, would be his grandfather, Walter. Although Jack's writings show his mother was also a major influence in his life. And, you know, we have the idea that H.P. Lovecraft's grandfather was the one that introduced him to the occult and all these weird stories. John Bluthar, archivist of NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, uh, Laboratory, has speculated that some adult must have encouraged Parsons' early interest in rockets and fireworks. Perhaps it was a neighbor or a teacher, but it may have been his grandfather, Walt. And again, we don't know because it's fucking history. So, of his teenage years, Parsons wrote an analysis by a master of the temple 
early adolescence continued the development of the necessary combinations. The awakening interest in chemistry and science prepared the counterbalance for the coming magical awakening, the means of obtaining prestige and livelihood in the formative period, and the scientific method necessary for my manifestation. The magical fiasco at the age of 16 was needful to keep you away from magic until you were sufficiently matured. And I believe the magical fiasco he's talking about was the death of his grandfather. Uh, because around the magical fiasco in 1931, uh, John's grandfather, Walt, would pass away. After the loss of this major role model, He would Jack would go on to search for another father figure to fill his role. So you have this lost young man trying to find a father figure and whoever he could uh, find that in so yeah, again this characteristic of the rest of his life was was his um attachments that he would form to positive yeah. male father figures he would call uh, that crowley, was what drew him to beloved, crowley yeah beloved father right yep. he would call crowley that i mean to be and fair i'm sure crowley fucking encouraged the shit out of that because he had that man had an ego the size of pluto or jupiter rather and he was fucking sending him a bunch of money bro Oh yeah, Parsons fucking bankrolled. Uh, he was, he was yeah. so Parsons basically uh, bankrolled the creation of the Thoth tarot deck because that was what Crowley's project was really? at the time. Yeah, really. Uh, according to Strange Angel, at least uh, the the project because Crowley was still living in London during um, world the beginning of World War Two. He was living in the shitty little ramshackle flat. Uh, flat because mind you, Crowley is already like. 10 years away from dying, maybe 20 years away from dying at this point. So he is, uh, he's no longer the great beast of uh, his youth. He is now just the old heroin addicted, decrepit. My name is Crowley. Yeah. Hello, my name Every, is Crowley. Everyone speaks when they do a Crowley voice in this, in this tone. But it really should just kind of be more like this, but Eopan, Eopan. All right, let's see how how do we do a, how do we do a British and then and then what fem it the, the fuck, fuck up. So let's go like this. And then you pine like this is your master Crowley, I'm the great beast, and I swear <laughs> to God, you gotta let me come on your face because I want to summon uh, the devil. Show me that little ass, yeah. Right, pull, so, pull, pull out your wand, boy. Pull it out. <laughs> uh, let's go here. Uh, figure. So he would f look for a father figure, which he found in Crowley. He would call him beloved father, and vice versa. He would call him. His son and Parsons and Foreman would go on to take their interest in rockets to the next level during these years. It's a good thing and they 19... never met because you know Crawley would have been like, come over here and fuck me in the ass, Jack. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I think he would have. Yeah. And I found that interesting that he never came out and, and met. I think he was being held up by the government over there, right? Yeah. Is that what it was? I, I think yeah. I think it was because Parsons was broke. Plus, like, there was a whole bunch of back and forth because Parsons' mentor in the Agape Lodge, Smith, was on the outs with Crowley pretty fucking mm -hmm. bad. Mm -hmm. So there was this whole, like, like Crowley was kind of grooming Parsons to take over as the head of the Agape Lodge, and then he eventually did, and then it gets to a point where, not to get, well, I'm getting ahead of ourselves, but. Yeah, 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 I got all that. I got all that goodness, bro. So uh, we have here in 1932, Jack would go on to work for Hercules Powder Company of Pasadena, where Foreman may have worked at the time, but most certainly did later on. Okay, In 1933, Parsons graduated from university school. Parsons and Foreman attended the same junior college together, but neither of them would end up graduating. During this time, as they developed their interest in rockets, Parsons and Foreman would correspond with Robert Goddard and some German and Russians working in the field. One of the Germans was science with science writer Willie Lay, who mm -hmm. was a Nazi, perhaps Hermann Oberth, the German father of rocketry, but he did co uh, contact his peer, Konstantin Tilskovsky, so, and that's, that's German, so don't 
butcher me, please. And none other than Warner Von Braun. They were pen pals and they stopped corresponding when they saw that they were giving more information to them that than they were receiving back. So they were yeah. like, fuck you. <laughs> Parsons, uh, Parsons and um, his partner. Names escape me right now. Uh, uh, Foreman? Foreman. Yeah, yeah, Parsons and Foreman were, were very uh, friendly with, with, with uh, Von Braun. And um, they were going back and forth and going back and forth. And then it got to a point where he's like, they're like, why the fuck is he asking us all this shit? Shouldn't he know this? They're like, yeah, we're not sending him any more information. Fuck this guy. <laughs> so we have here in 1935, Jack married Helen Northrop. They met at a church dance. Around this time, Jack wrote in his memoirs to what he was cryptically referring to as a loss of family fortune as his mother would go and she would buy a new house for herself and his grandmother. And this was around the Great Depression, so they did lose a ton of money during this time, the family. Even though and they were still wealthy, all things considered, but I mean, even the wealthy were starting to like, they were saying Millionaire's Row started getting like kind of shabby around the Great Depression. But did I, I found it very funny when I got to that part in the book that I was like, huh, Jack Parsons at a church dance. Weird. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this is all before everything, right? Before he well, would, you know, solidify that's when the so That's hate. where the social shit was, was church. That's when church was like mm. the center of community and stuff. So it makes sense. But I just was like, ah, that's ironic. Yeah. So we have here the, the next section of the presentation, Theodore von Karman, JPL, and Caltech, 19, 1936 to 1939. NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, began in the 1920s, known as Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory, California Institute of Technology, and GALSIT for short. Okay, that was, a, that was a fucking mouthful. In 1926, it was being led by Hungarian professor Theodore von Karman, who's who was said to have been a descendant of Rabbi Judah Lo Ben Bezalel of Prague, which is the, the famous rabbi that summoned the golem to protect the people in the village at the time. And he would boast about his ancestors' reputation for having created the golem. And the rabbi uh, I read, again, this was very briefly, so correct me if I'm wrong, any of you who are listening. The rabbi also had connections to John D, the John D. Okay. Most court magicians of uh, Victorian era and pre were Jewish because a okay. good Christian would not dabble in that mysticism. Mm -hmm. Plus, there was no Christian mysticism. It was all Kabbalah. So it would yeah. be it would stand to reason that your your you know, your Jewish person would understand Kabbalah because your your average, you know, we're not even going to say peasant. We're going to say scribe. Your average scribe didn't read Kabbalistic text and they sure as shit didn't read fucking Hebrew. They were lucky if they read Latin, and most of that shit was in Old Hebrew or Aramaic languages that would have probably still been, not Aramaic as much, but Hebrew, that would have still been used in a familial sense for those uh, those court magicians. And that's, that's funny because they would later come to be known as Christian Kabbalists. There was a section mm -hmm. where there was, it was a Christian Kabbalist, so you could see that the movement there from it being strictly Jewish to, okay, let's kind of dabble in it to then, you know, establish our own type of thing, you know? So you see that all throughout history, right? Yeah. Cause it's got to do with Pythagoreans and stuff. And the, yeah, and the Hebrew stuff also stems from uh, Zoroastrian mysticism as well, obviously it being the, yes. uh, the original monotheistic faith. And I don't know, did we, uh, did, did you plug your shit at the beginning of the episode, bro? I did not know. You can plug your stuff now. Sorry. I can plug myself now. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, obviously, check me out on Motherfucking Strange Brew Podcast with that sweet Tom Thompson. Uh, also, uh, you know, constantly streaming over on uh, Twitch, Invader Daggett underscore TTV on Twitch. Come uh, come hang out. Come play some Dead by Daylight with me, mothers. And uh, Instagram, HP Shovecraft. Twitter, uh, 
Kaiju Rev. Bought it. Awesome. Yeah, my bad, bro. I just got ahead of I was excited for this. Oh, episode. no, you're good. You're good. We have here uh, Car- Van Car- Von Carmen called Parsons a, quote-unquote, a delightful screwball who, quote, loved to recite pagan poetry to the sky while stamping his feet. And he was talking, referring to Crowley's Hymn to Pan, which Parsons was known to love and recite often. Mm-hmm. And not even just a hymn to Pan. Parsons, that was a, he, he was a fucking coos hound with his poetry. Like, that's what mm-hmm. everyone says, that he would just walk in and all of the secretaries and all of the ladies that were in the room would just be like, oh, here comes Jack. He's going to read us some poetry. <laughs> like, and I mean, nerd, he was bro. a dapper fucking dude. Yeah. Um, so he had some t- nice tits. Have you seen that picture of him with without a shirt on? Like, have I seen a picture of a handsome man without his shirt on? Bro, he has some nice titties. I've seen, seen him. Yeah, he does. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, but he was so classically uh, handsome that they modeled uh, Tony Stark's father after yes. Jack Parsons. Yes, I was gonna mention that. That was, yes, absolutely. So you see the the influence, right? That they that and they plug these little pieces here and there. But you're absolutely right that it was modeled after. Jack Parsons' father. Which they and, say uh, Doctor Strange was modeled after Vincent Price, but I think he looks a lot more like Ellen Watts. Oh, that's an interesting one. I haven't heard that one. Oh, really? Yeah. So the whole uh, the white stripe in the hair and the yeah. slip back, like the whole oh, thing yeah. was modeled after Vincent Price, supposedly. Uh, but he really looks like an older Alan Parsons when he, or not Alan Parsons. Um, Alan Watts. Alan Watts. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't. That's a nice connection there. Um, we have here Von Carmen would, and this is where it gets a little weird. Oh, if it hasn't already. Von Carmen <laughs> would go on to persuade Gausset to lease three acres of land from the city of Pasadena and the area known as Arroyo Seco, which is in the San Gabriel Mountains just above the dam called Devil's Gate. Mm-hmm. Note the dam, again, H.P. Lovecraft, his family had a dam. Yep. And we have a dam in here. And just like H.P. Lovecraft's family owned a dam, NASA's JPL is there till this day till this day you know they're there and here they would go on to conduct numerous rocket tests well there's the astronomy connection too between uh lovecraft and parsons oh yeah lovecraft was uh uh, fascinated with astronomy when he was a young kid and later on and obviously that's where most rocketeers start is staring at the stars and you you mentioned astronomy and one of the things that michael hoffman brings up in his book psycho, uh, psychological uh, secret societies and psychological warfare was that the parsons family also has ties to or i believe the white side family which i wasn't able to find either the white side of the parsons family one of the two has ties to astronomy and optics right so again optics uh, making of optics so oh. but i wasn't able to find that connection again and, and i just wanted to note it because if you want to dig it up it's I'm sure it's there somewhere because Hoffman is a legit guy, but I wasn't able to find that connection. But again, there's supposedly somewhere in those eight generations that I went through in this old book, it was supposed to be there. And I didn't have the time. It was like 400 pages and I was just flipping through real quick. So 40 years later, after they would lease these three acres, the hillside strangler would arrange the bodies of his victims in the Arroyo Seco Devil's Gate side. Okay, so... Again, there was people who 40 years later would follow, supposedly, because they said that they opened up a portal to another fucking mm-hmm. dimension at this area. And this is how we have UFOs. But we'll get to that later. In Halloween of 1936 is said to have been the birth of JPL. There is a famous picture known as the nativity scene, which is re- supposedly recreated with mannequins at every open house yearly. Okay. Really? Yes, and there you can look up the picture of them. I don't know if it's continued today. I know there's pictures of the mannequins 
somewhere on the internet, Anton. It's kind of hard to find. What's it? Uh, what's it called? The nativity scene, and it's the one where I, I believe Parsons is laying on the ground. You have Foreman. I believe you have Molina in there because he was one of the the trio, and they're you know in the in the show when when that hose blows off and they're showing Von Carmen like that they can produce trust. I didn't the watch hose. the show. Oh, I see. I see what you're talking about though. Yeah, the where they're all sitting there around. I actually had that pulled up earlier. Yes, that's the famous nativity scene. And for those uh, uh, listening at home, uh, you can either Google it or yeah, just just Google. Why it. you why you uh, why you plug in Google? You shill. Or DuckDuckGo, bro. Du- no, DuckDuckGo sells your information now too, bro. They all sell the information, Anton. Okay, they're all lizards. Not all brave. Right? Brave? Oh, whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, that's it's supposedly recreated every year at open houses with mannequins. They have mannequins of these people, okay? And it's the nativity scene. So that's kind of weird, okay? Because it's, again, the Antichrist. You have Christ, the birth of Christ, the nativity scene with, you know, with the... Three wise men and all this shit. The inversion of the logos. That's what occultists are known for. Exactly. So the group would later be known as the Suicide Squad. And you had Frank Molina, Jack Parsons, Edward Foreman, and others in there. And they would terrorize the Caltech campus. Their tests were loud and violent with various close calls. They were called the Suicide Squad because of the hazardous nature Mm -hmm. in their tests and would result damage into their equipment and their inevitable deaths if they kept it up. And they were expelled from the campus after a second explosion, forcing them to move the operation full-time to Seco. And there was a couple of times where they had close calls. Like, there would be, like, a piece of metal that would fly right where one of them was standing at at one point. And it's like, dude, like, what are you doing, bro? Yeah, I was, was going to bring that up. Yeah, where the explosion went off and the dude would just happen to be out. And he came <laughs> back and he's like, son of a bitch, that's where I would have been standing. Like, And that's... The OG Suicide Squad, the okay. original Suicide Squad, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that and uh, Parson just just had that whole reckless abandon when it came to oh this. Let's let's see if we can get a reaction out of this. Let's try this, and it was <laughs> like he didn't follow any sort of safety procedure no. because let's re- let's recall here for the listeners, this man did not have a degree in any formal oh. sciences, which is something that would come back to haunt him later because like many universities were like ah you're not really a scientist, you're just an enthusiast. But, I mean, he, he knew more about rocketry and had more faith in anything than any other person there. Like, without yeah, and him... In, like, and three or four years, he has, he accomplished way more than, than other people established in their entire lives. Yep. So, with, with, with that said, Anton, I want to bring forward what they actually did. Because we everybody talks, oh, he's the father of modern-day rocketry. What he actually did, Gaussett would be solidified in history to develop the first successful JTOs jet-assisted takeoffs, and this would lead to their design to be manufactured in the thousands for both military, civilian, and commercial airplanes, putting America on the forefront of rocketry. So this is what this occultist that was trying to summon some some the ba- the Babylon whore, right? This right. guy, again, attributed, right? I, I believe that at this point, JPL would love to expunge all history of Parsons because of all the shit that he was doing and the people that he was rolling around with. But again, I believe that these uh, these lizards, if you will, they achieve their their notoriety because of means like this, because they're yeah. talking to otherworldly entities that are giving them information or inspiring them in some sort of way in order to accomplish what they want to do right and and they just go down in history because it's so revolutionary if you're willing to fucking literally sell your soul in order to do these certain things 
obviously you give you're 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 getting a lot in return but what are you willing to give up because you're going to eventually pay with your life and i had some i was having a conversation with somebody where they're like oh i want to uh get into like the white lodges you know the ones that are actually doing good i go i think it all always leads to that abyss i think it uh, you know no matter what path you take either that left hand path or the right hand path it still leads you to the abyss that's why you need to be within the center of those two pillars because how the alchemist right he understood to have a balance in his life he needed to walk between the two pillars in order to achieve that balance, in order to stay sane. If you go too much to the left, it's bad. If you go too much to the right, it's bad. Yep. So picking sides, I believe, is irrelevant because eventually it's going to loop around like the Ouroboros and come back full circle, and it leads you to that abyss eventually. The, That's what I believe by the doing whole, these things that they were doing. The whole point of, of reaching the Godhead, in my uh, Zen absurdist uh, opinion, is, is not anything other than just the removement of uh, the removal of attachments yes is, is what it should be you should your goal should be to exit samsara whenever you can not to achieve grandeur in this life mm, interesting yeah i can agree with that absolutely we have here in 1938 Parsons would be in the courtroom named by Caltech as their best explosive expert when the prosecutor of a murder trial contacted them. Parsons served <laughs> as an expert witness for the murder by car bomb of Harry Raymond. And the famous picture of him holding up the pipe bomb with the string, that's the picture of him in the courtroom showing up this thing, this pipe bomb that he recreated. They actually blew up a car in the desert as well. Mm -hmm. And this was a... He testified against a corrupt trio of cops that were, there was an investigation. One of them was getting too close, so they blew up one of their own members. And, you know, he was all about fighting the, the corruption, right? Because L.A. was growing so quickly. California was growing so quickly, and there was a lot of corruption. Everything, you know, was corruption rampant. The so day of Pars... God. I've got a quote here from Jack Parsons, which is the, It is necessary that we defend freedom unless we all wish to be slaves. It is expedient that we achieve brotherhood unless we desire destruction, and it is convenient that we grant others the right to their own opinions and lifestyles in order to maintain our own. Like like I said at the earlier beginning of this episode, uh, Robert Anton Wilson's favorite libertarian author of the 21st century is Jack fucking Parsons, because mm -hmm. freedom is a double-edged sword, which is yes. impossible to find. On Amazon, a paperback is $250 because it's out of print. Um, is his manifesto on libertarianism and it was actually written more or less in response to the mistreatment he received at the hands of the US government because I mean Parsons was under investigation uh, for his early ties to the Communist Party uh, with other members of the the Caltech rocket squad the suicide mm -hmm. squad but Parsons never uh, never signed off and never became a member he was a communist sympathizer is what they he, considered him correct yeah but he was uh, interesting to note whether it was because of his um, contributions to rocketry or his defense contracts uh, he was basically just cleared of all of the charges uh, when mm -hmm. the FBI did the uh, the anti-American investigations absolutely and <clears throat> we have here the day of Parsons testimony there was a bomb threat called in. The caller stated he would bomb Joe Fainer, the prosecutor, and the same the same way Raymond was. Eventually, there was three convictions that came with this trial. This is later tied to Parsons' death 14 years later, which we will get to. Sometime in... Let me see where the hell my cursor is here. So we have sometime in 19, 1939, Parsons would make a discovery in Robert Rapinski's library, which was a close friend of his something that would change the remainder of his life forever. He found a copy of Crowley's, and some people say this differently, 
Conux Ompax. How do you say it, Anton? Uh, what was it? Con Conx Ompax. Spell, spell it for me real quick. K O N X O M P A X. I don't know what library that is, if it is a library or not. Because you know how they have like two names and shit. Yeah, yeah, like Libra All Vegas and things yeah. along those lines. Uh, yeah. Conks Ompax. Yeah, or, I've, I've heard it's pronounced a bunch of different ways. So. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things that, I mean, you can fucking pronounce it any way you want. It's like the, the Crowley or the Crowley. Crowley, like, get, Crowley, Cuckley, whichever, yeah. That's a super crazy cover. Do you have the image pulled up for the uh, the Conks Ompax? I don't, but you can pull it up, share screen, and I'll pull it up. I have no idea how to do that. I uh, just at the bottom share screen. It pulls up, and I just share it. I would like to see it because I don't have it in front of me. I have my presentation in front of me. Uh, share screen. Share screen. For those listening at home, in your car. So that's, that's it right there. While you're masturbating, whatever you're doing, <laughs> check this out on YouTube. Uh, I didn't pull up, bro. Sometimes it doesn't work, which is bullshit, but... No, it's weird. Huh. Anyways, I'll look it up. Yeah. Uh, but I'm sure it's a crazy cover. So we have here sometime he found this book. The discovery Rapinski would go on to write was to Parsons, quote, like a real like real water to a thirsty man. Rapinski would give the book to Parsons and he would enter in co- into correspondence shortly after, shortly thereafter with none other than Alistair Crowley, Crowley, Cuckley, whatever. From this, Parsons would soon be introduced to the head of the Ordo Templi Orientis, Wilfred Talbot Smith. And coincidentally enough, the, on- the only lodge of the OTO was located within a few miles of Parsons' home. So it was almost like it was meant to be in some sort of weird, sick, uh, satanic, evil, pedophilic way. I don't know if that's, you know. But, go ahead. I don't. I don't know if Parsons ever had accusations of of uh, pedophilia yes. against him. He did. Did he? When? Yes. Oh, I'll get to that. Okay. We have the OTO, Crowley, and Parsons double life, nineteen forty nineteen forty two. The Ordo Templi Orientis, or Order of the Temple of the East, is a quasi Masonic initiating body found in Ger- founded in Germany. There is supposedly a secret meaning to the letters OTO. The order's highest ranks are said to involve working with tantric exercises, usually referring to sex magic. Mm-hmm. The OTO claims descent from various occultic circles, including the Bavarian Illuminati, the Rosicrucians, the Albigensians, Alb- Alb- and Cathars, the Knights Templar, and various early Gnostic sects. Founded by Karl Kellner and Theodore Royce, Rolls Royce, perhaps. It's spelled R-E-U-S-S, and it's pronounced Royce. Hmm. Royce was a Mason and a Rosicrucian and was working on a revival of the Bavarian Illuminati. Have you ever heard the uh, the, the supposed origin of the Rosicrucians, that it was just a fucking prank by a couple people? <laughs> like, the first two dudes that started it just started as a laugh against Christianity, and it, I'm like, sh- then I'm a sure. whole bunch of, like, old-school occultists were like, no, you're on to something here. They're like, no, no, we're not. This is a fucking joke. <laughs> I'm sure, bro. I mean, just like anything other, any yeah. other fucking organization is probably like, hey, let's make a quick joke. It's like the Church of the Subgenius, and then it turns into like this thing that you can't control. Exactly. So we have Kellner was a Freemason and an initiate of the influential Hermetic Brotherhood of Light. Alistair Crowley joined the OTO in 1910 and wrote about it in his, in his famous story, Book of Lies, which was published in 1912. 
After Royce read the book, he was angry and accused Crowley of having revealed the secret of the highest degrees of the order. Because, because of this, Crowley would be compelled to initiate into the highest degrees and be sworn to secrecy. And, you know, when he tells this story, when Crowley, den Crowley denied this, Royce would point out the offending passage to him. Crowley would go on to say he instantly knew the secrets to the mysteries and many other spiritual traditions. He had the key. That's why and, he was immediately inducted in is because they were like at first they thought that someone had blabbed to him and then he just told all their secrets. Then he was like, no, I just know this shit. And then everyone in the lodge was like, oh, oh, we should probably get this dude in now because this this guy knows some shit. Yeah, and there there's some debates as to which chapter he pointed out to him, right? There, I know uh, Robert Anton Wilson talks about it. There's two different chapters that they might have pointed out, but uh, the key. Uh, remember, Lovecraft wrote about the Silver Gates and the Silver Key. Okay, so there's uh, that other connection there, right? We have the key. You have the abyss. You have all these other different things that they that these occultists talked about, and. After Crowley's initiation, he would rewrite. He would rewrite everything in the in the OTO, the rankings for one lower ones in particular, and he would replace most of the Masonic material with Thelema. Thelema meant will in Greek. Excuse me. It was special to Crowley because of his work from 1904, the Book of the Law, A.K.A. Liber L. Valigus. Is that how you say it? Legus? How do you say? It? Uh, yeah, Liber, Liber L. Valigus. I don't. I, the, my Latin is uh, not good. Let's just yeah, call it that. This is his work that has the famous Iowas. And do what thou will shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law. Love under will. Okay, Every man, woman, and child is the star. It's it's, it's all the, yes. the shit that's constantly quoted from Crowley is the book of the law. Yes. Yes, exactly. His, his most famous work, arguably. So the Agape Lodge would be established under him and run by Wilfred Smith. After Royce had a stroke, Crowley would take over the order in 1921. In 1930, which was 15 years later after the first Agape Lodge was founded, Crowley would send Smith to Los Angeles to establish another lodge, the Agape Lodge, which, which is the one that he ran, and I, ha I had this mixed up on my presentation, but that's how it went. In 1930, 15 years after the first one, they would found another Agape Lodge. So... Uh, Parsons would become involved with the OTO when an unknown scientific colleague took him to one of Smith's meetings at his home in Hollywood. After this, Parsons and his wife would be begin attending various meetings, including weekly performances of the Gnostic Mass, again, which was something introduced by Crowley. Jack would go on to write an analysis by a master of the temple, quote, the alternate repulsion and attraction you felt the first year after meeting Smith were caused by a subconscious resistance against the ordeals ahead. Had you these had had you had these experiences before without such resistance, you would have become hopelessly unbalanced. And Jack would find the father figure he was looking for in Smith. Okay. And after more than a year of attending meetings and the weekly Gnostic masses, John and Helen would join the Agape Lodge on February 15th. 1941 i have 2941 jesus no not in the future and uh, 1941 and a few weeks later the golden dawn they so they would join both simultaneously and parsons would become freighter topan aka freighter 210 the initials the initials stood for the greek equivalent to the ointment of will through the nupial nup, nuptials of love i mm -hmm. hope i'm saying that right and then he would change it, right? Because they're all about gematria and all this shit to Eopan. 
So I O P A N, which is uh, for, directly from the Hindu Pan. The yes, Eopan. Yeah, and the highway that runs through Pasadena and heads directly to JPL is numbered mm-hmm. two ten. So, interestingly enough, right? Almost like again, they're living this fictional life, this double life. You know, occult, you know, scientist by day, occultist by night, type of thing, and they intertwine both of them and they manifest. Uh, things into reality. Well, so that goes along with the synchronicities of manifestation. That's when you yes. know that you what you're what you're will, trying to impose with your will upon reality is starting to take form. Yes, absolutely. We have Parsons would encounter one of his favorite authors, Jack Williamson, who had written Darker Than You Think, which was he was obsessed with apparently. It is a story about the supernatural. The main character discovers he is a werewolf, but slowly learns to accept his powers. They seek a revival in the story, which is accomplished with the help of a child of the night. And this book would influence Parsons' writing. Another notable and possible visitor was E. Hoffman Price, who knew most of the Cthulhu clique. Mm-hmm. Price bragged about introducing H.P. Lovecraft to occultic ideas, which we know his stories are balls deep you know, these occultic ideas and, and the symbolism is balls deep in the Cthulhu mythos. Yeah, for somebody who is a staunch atheist by his own admission, there's certainly a lot of woo-woo yes. in his shit. Yes, absolutely. In November of 1941, there was an incident involving some of the people who visited the, par- who visited the Parsons' house. They would rob a car at gunpoint, and Molina would go to talk to one of these people at the jail, and they wouldn't be able to get any information from them or from Parsons or from Foreman. And Molina would go on to write, it then became quite evident that whatever is whatever was that Parsons and Foreman were playing with had certain worrisome aspects. And I butchered this shit in here. I mean, nothing's uh, free. If you're if you're invoking shit and you're, you know, trying to get something out of it, it's going to want something in return. So. Oh, absolutely. So my next section here is the Parsonage, L. Ron Hubbard and Anakian Magic. 1942 to 1945. On June 26, 1942, Jack and Helen would move to Millionaire's Mile at 1003 South Orange Grove Avenue, just blocks away from where he grew up. Parsons would convert this into 19 apartments, and ironically, in the late 1940s, it would be taken down and turned into a, an apartment complex. Yep. Okay, so, <laughs> so it's American <laughs> tradition. It's been up for longer than 50 years. Fuck it, knock it down. Yeah. This house would be no would become to be known as the infamous the Parsonage, and I found it interesting, bro, that the neighbor was the widow of Adolphus Bush, uh, which are 100% lizards. Uh, that's Anweiser Bush, the beer people, the reptilians, the, the beer people, not the reptilians. God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> so we have here the Parsonage had a library, it had a signed portrait of Crowley, it had demons and all types of creepy shit going on in there. They had all types of weirdos coming in and out and living in there and there was weird weather happening outside around the house as well. So they were manipulating the weather the weather by all the shit that they were doing. Parsons' room was the largest and served as a temple. There's actually a really fun story in uh, in Strange Angel about uh I can't remember which wife of Parsons it was. I want to say it was it was the last it was it wasn't the last one. It was the second one. Uh, how she was never his wife. No, the third one wasn't his wife, right? No, he married Cameron. He didn't marry Betty. 
Oh, he didn't marry Betty. Okay, so uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Betty uh, where there was a brutal windstorm that picked up around the parsonage and she was like blowing papers and shit everywhere and she's running around trying to close all the windows and she's like, Jack ran upstairs, grabbed his dagger and started trying to stop the wind with magic. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, just close the fucking shutters, dumbass. (laughs) So we have here, his room was the largest and served as a temple. Police would eventually come, and this is what I'm going to get to what you were mentioning earlier. Police would eventually come to investigate various complaints. Uh, one of the more noticeable ones being the alleged rape of a 16-year-old boy whom claimed the three of Parsons' followers, and in some accounts it says that Parsons was there as well, sodomized him during a quote-unquote black mass at the house. What the fuck? Yeah, the police concluded the cult uh, to be a little more than an quote-unquote, an organized dedicated to religious, an organization dedicated to religious and philosophical speculation with respectable members such as a Pasadena bank president, doctors, lawyers, and a Hollywood mm-hmm. actors. So does this shit sound familiar? Mind you, this was before the QAnon stuff. This was before the pedophilia and Hollywood stuff. So but this is also early satanic panic shit, which a lot of that draws on the anti-Semitic stuff of yesteryear, because that was something that was generally levied against the Jews as well, was uh, pedophilic activity, uh, the uh, consumption of the flesh of children, the murder of babies and mm-hmm. shit. This like the satanic panic shit has been around more or less as long as Christianity has been around. So oh, yeah. it, it's entirely possible that it's just one thing you know, stacking on top of another and just being the same old tired story repeated ad nauseum. There were stories of, like, pregnant women jumping through fires in the backyard and shit because they had, like, I think it was, like, 10 that, acres or something like that. Yeah, that allegedly actually happened because that's mm-hmm. in Strange Angel where they're like, no, it was meant to be uh, to uh, a fertility thing, which that that isn't necessarily anything nefarious, much more just a, hey, I believe in these things. Fucking weird, I, bro. Well, but if you're, if you're of that esoteric mindset and if you're of that faith and you have you know, you're with child and you're trying to make sure that that child is, is grows up to be safe and strong. Then one of the things is jumping through the fire. I'm sure it yeah. wasn't a flame high enough to cause any actual damage because most of it, as you well know, is symbolism. It's not actually you know, putting yourself in the danger. I was reading the Bible last night and uh, one of the things in there was, uh, you know, I was talking about the occult and one of the things was this, this famous King or Pharaoh, whatever he would have his sons, uh, you know, walk through the fire. So it has a lot to do with that. And, you know, they, it says, you know, don't visit mediums and spiritualists mm-hmm. and all this shit. Uh, but I was uh, studying up on the book Revelation uh, and various different books. I was reading up on the Ten Commandments just to freshen up, you know, and, and uh, you know, did a little prayer and shit, you know, just in case, bro. You know, you know uh, we're all children of God, if you will, right? So right. of a God, not maybe this old man in heaven, but you know what I mean. So... Uh, there, there was talks of just weird shit going on around the house and Helen would get sexually involved. So his first wife would get sexually involved with Wilfred Smith and she would have his child in 1943. And Smith would later go on to be removed by Crowley through what I put here, egregious means. Right. So he yeah. would, it was, it's, I, think, I think it's the funny when I was, reading, it's I was so like, good. What? It's so, so good. yeah, it's so great. Uh, he would convince him he was a god and sent him out to pursue that endeavor and to have his primary task of to recognize himself. Yep. And this guy was so egotistical, bro, that he would fall for the bullshit. And he was sent out on this grand magical retirement to find the god within him. <laughs> and after this retirement, he would try to return, but he would not be accepted. So Crowley flat out sent them a letter 
uh, during the correspondence when they talked about it. And he's like, for all intents and purposes, this man is dead to any member of the lodge and should be oh, treated shit. as such. Really? Well, he did, it wasn't like he was saying, you know, kill this person, but he was just yeah. saying, he's like, as far as any of you are concerned, Wolf like is dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like they don't exist after the park. Yep. So uh, with, Smith's, with Smith gone, Parsons would act as the head of the lodge. In 1943, Parsons would divorce Helen after striking up a relationship with her younger sister, Betty. Parsons would brag about getting rid of his wife by quote-unquote witchcraft. And I want to note, about three years after his divorce, Parsons, he would spiral out of control because mm -hmm. he was madly in love with this, with, with Helen, the, his original wife. And he would start to be coked up on drugs, psychedelics. He would do peyote, mescaline, you name it. I've actually got Chase, his, uh, I've got his uh, poem. I, I want to read it. I have oh. it pulled up. <laughs> so just like Crowley, he was a dope fiend and Parsons would follow in the same footsteps and he would write in his 1943 poem or I hi Don Quixote I live on peyote marijuana morphine and cocaine I never know sadness but only a madness that burns at the heart and the brain I see each charwoman ecstatic inhumane angelic demonic divine each wagon a dragon each beer mug a flagon that brims with ambrosial wine so that was uh, Oriflame in 1943. Oh, you're not going to do the whole thing? Oh, that's all I had in the book. Oh, do you want me to, you want me to finish yeah, it? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I went to the city and found it a pity. The devil was playing at hell, and 10 million mortals had entered hell's portals and thought they were all doing well. I said, see, dear people, on every church steeple, an imp of the devil at play. See ghouls cut their capers in daily newspapers, and fiends in police courts hold sway. The mountains are palaces, women are chalices, meant to be supped and not sold. The desert a banquet hall set for a festival, ripe for the free and the bold. The wind and the sky are ours, heaven and all its stars, waken and do what you will. Break with this demon, spawned hell-inspired nightmare, bond magic lies over the hill. They said I was crazy, ambiguous, lazy, disgusting, fantastic, obscene. So I hide for my sagebrush and cactus and corn mush to see if the air was still clean. Oh, I hight Don Quixote, I live on peyote, marijuana, morphine, and cocaine. And may I be twice damned for a bank clerk or storehand if I visit the city again. And did you notice there, what, what did he say about the sway at the very beginning there? That the police and the authorities are sway? Yep, that, that goes into the trial the, uh, so, the, yeah. related to that, yeah. yeah but uh, so There's they... actually a, a recitation uh, that Bob does, Pope Bob does at one point in time, which is just like, to hear it in fucking Wilson's voice is great. Yeah. We have, in the occult circle, they believe that it is easier to induce astral vision when on alternate, when on altering, alternately dulls, I uh, fucked this up. So anyways, when you alternate and you dull your senses, mm -hmm. it excites them by chemical means, whatever. So I, I fucked but that up. Now. To throw back to it, uh, while Crowley lived a similar philosophy, mm -hmm. um, he actually scolded Parsons for publishing Anton LaVey too. Anton LaVey uh, would also do psychedelics and shit. He no, LaVey was rapidly anti-drug. Really? Yeah. He, he, or maybe he talked about it? He No, so LaVey fucking hated hippies with a really? passion. Yeah, that's why he actually championed uh, Charles Manson. He didn't champion Charles Manson, but he uh, respected Manson because he believed that the, sh the Tate LaBianca murders ended the hippie movement, and he fucking hated hippies. Um, maybe we can get into him after Crowley. Oh, I'm down. 
I'm totally done. I know uh, Tom and I are going to do a hell series at one point in time on Strange Brew, but I mean, I'm I'm always down to talk Levee or, or anything spooky ooky like that. Tom always says he's going to do subjects and never does them, so we'll do it. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, shout out to Tom. Tom no Shade, bro. I, l- I love you, boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So so Crowley basically like. Because there were, uh, that's when the Elodge was still under investigation and shit, and you know the the uh, things were a little unstable. It was when things were starting to ramp up and people getting investigated for stuff in the U.S. And Crowley was like, "You're just fueling their paranoia by publishing mm-hmm. this shit." Mm-hmm. So, again, they would take these psychedelics, be coked mm-hmm. up, et cetera, et cetera. Betty would become his priestess at the Gnostic Mass. She would be Parsons' partner in the performance of sex magic with a K, of inducing alternated states through prolonged sexual ecstasy. And they would never marry. Parsons would go on to imply the element of adultery and incest in this relationship with his wife's sister was most appealing. Breaking taboos, that, that old occult tactic. So I put on here, initiations in this type of magic are very big on breaking taboos to break free of the indoctrination of the subconscious. So cuckery and such, the shock is meant to decondition the initiate from his usual lifestyle. So Mm -hmm. when the wizard, magician, whatever tells you, hey, I turn around, I need to put it in your butt. You know, you're just, oh, okay. You know, and they turn around, whatever, you know, it's like, okay, well, I guess we're going to do this. And it happened. So lest we forget the most famous uh, Crowley quote of all. Magic is stored in the butt. <laughs> the eye of Horus. The yeah. eye of Horus. So, do, do you think he pulled an Ace Ventura whenever he'd do a ritual and just bend <laughs> over and like start talking with his ass cheeks like that? <laughs> oh, I'm the great beast. Why don't you have to go Fuck me dance. What the fuck? <laughs> oh, that'd be so funny. Like, what are you doing? I'm just talking to the angels. So, uh, we have that's great. And in 1945, Betty would share her sentiment on the situation with Parsons and his occult working. Something, something others would refer, refer to as the quote unquote the witchcraft. And there was reported paranormal activity inside the parsonage. And Around this time, Parsons would sell his shares of JPL. Most people in the organization wanted him out because his activities mm-hmm. were interfering with his work. His coworkers that would attend these ceremonies would show up hungover or under the influence. Parsons would, was also working his way through all the secretaries, having sex with all of them, and it got to the point where it would interrupt their work. So, could you could you imagine you uh you know you you're you're some button down fucking university schlub professional. That you're all working on something that is just obscenely fucking dangerous, like mega yield high explosives, and some dude shows up still tripping on peyote from the day before, <laughs> where he's just like, <laughs> "I can see where right, that would be dangerous." Let's light this fuse, man. It's just like this is pre Hunter S. Thompson times too, so nobody's used to some madman just tripping balls, blowing shit up. Just like, oh, uh, why don't you step away from the detonator there, Jack? I uh, I think someone else is going to light this rocket today. Yeah, bro. <laughs> uh, step the fuck back, bro. Uh, we have here Parsons and Foreman would go on to form Ad Astro Research, a small explosive company that would be investigated for espionage. The charges were eventually dropped. And I would like to note the synchronicities of these individuals that would surround their lives. They are almost living out of a story of some sort, fiction becomes reality in 1942 author william a h white would would write a novel titled rocket 
I, I believe it was rockets to the morgue or rocket to the morgue, where it portrays Parson among others and none other than the Scientology founder, L. Ron Hubbard. And this book would be written a few years before Parsons actually met Hubbard because so they had these characters that was, again, portrayals of these real people. And they had in there Hubbard, L. Ron Hubbard. Hubbard Before ran in the happened. same uh, science fiction author circles. That's yes. where he and what was it? Uh, the was it Stories of Manana or the Manana Club? The one that Robert Heinlein uh, of uh, fucking Starship, goddamn motherfucking troopers fame. <laughs> uh, they were all part of this club, which was just this collection of science fiction writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Hubbard was was a part of that as well. Yeah, I think that's what I have here next. In 1945, Lou Goldstone would bring L. Ron Hubbard to meet Parsons. He liked him immediately. The dude was so full of shit and of himself. Uh, I'm re- like, I'm reading through the thing, thinking it's like the same thing. It's, this is me like putting in notes. The dude was so full of shit and of himself. He would he told over-exaggerated stories and was very charismatic. Some people said they never liked him but would still be around him. And mind you, this is the author that wrote the most science fiction than anybody. You're talking about Hubbard? A lot. Yeah, Hubbard. Yeah, they said that he was, like, just an obscene ladies' man and could pull any woman away from anyone, which is crazy because every other person fucking hated him. Yeah. Like, yeah. Crowley despised Hubbard with a passion, and I really think it's because <laughs> he was worried that Hubbard was stepping on his dick. And, uh, I mean, Hubbard is arguably more successful than Crowley in that L. Ron Hubbard is the most successful cult leader of all time. He died a millionaire in his bed. Yeah, absolutely, on a no. big-ass boat. Yeah, no shot in the head in the jungle, no fucking <laughs> hail bob comet, cut off your balls, none of that shit. L. Ron Hubbard died drowning in pussy juice and money. Nice, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I want to note the connection between Parsons, Crowley, Lovecraft, and Hubbard. There's not a solid connection between Parsons. Uh, uh, there's not a solid connection between Parsons, Crowley, and Lovecraft, but Hubbard did meet H.P. Lovecraft. So a lot of people say that Crowley met H.P. Lovecraft. There's no solid connections there. Uh, or Parsons meeting Lovecraft uh, because again, but they were in the same circle. Did they ever meet? Who the fuck knows? Uh, but again, there's there's just connections there, right? In the same circle. Well, I would say unless uh, LRH made his way over to Providence or maybe New York City at one point in time, I doubt that he did. Like, yeah, yeah. We have here. Uh, we know Parsons was reading weird tales where the color out of space was published. Some believe Parsons did read this at some point. We will never really truly know. And the beginning of the end was because of Parsons' encouragement for Betty to take on other lovers. Uh, one of these lovers would eventually destroy Parsons with jealousy, and, and it was ended up being Hubbard. Which, uh, the that's one that a taboo would... in Thelema. You're not supposed to have yes, jealousy. That's that's exactly. the uh, so that's that's one of the things going back when uh, when Parsons first hooked up with Betty, uh, he uh, apparently was very cold, calculated, and callous about uh, telling his first wife, where he's just like, uh, look. I think you're a wonderful person. You have a fantastic personality. You're a great, like, solid, good person. It's like, but I prefer your sister sexually. So, well, I mean, that's deal with again, it. Break, breaking the taboos. So, that's, I mean, that's what you get for fucking. Oh, for sure. Yeah, Thalema uh, proposes a, a a strict policy of non-jealousy. You're supposed to be able to just not have any attachments to anything, other than after, your own will, of course. Yeah. After this. Everything in the parsonage would fall apart. So after she started dating Hubbard, uh, he would everything would just fall apart. He would dive down deeper into the occult, and it was just uh, we'll get to that here in a second. Yeah, he Rogers. lost his rockets, and he lost his you know his his sex partner, and mm-hmm. Hubbard would apparently like 
it got to a point where they would, you know, remove themselves to another room, and then there there came a time where he was just straight up making out with her in front of Parsons, and that was when Jack started to get to the point where he's like, I can't fucking take this. <laughs> Can you imagine just, like, this slimy fuck just being around you and just, like, he would have sex with all the good-looking women in the house, and, that, and that's all he would do. Yeah, Scott exactly. Was, that was a weasel, bro. So <laughs> Alva Rogers tells a story of one night where they would be awakened by, quote, some weird and disturbing noises seemingly coming from Jack's room, which sounded for all the world as though someone were dying at the very least or at the very least were deathly ill. Uh, it was just him so- like sobbing while he masturbated, listening to LRH <laughs> bang fucking Betty. So... <laughs> We uh, Another quote here uh, further in that little story. We pushed open a little further the door because they would go out into the, into the hall. They would push open a little further in the door in order to better see what was going on. What we saw, I'll never forget, although I find it hard to describe in any detail. And it goes on to say, Jack was draped in a black robe and stood with his back to us, his arms outstretched in the center of a pentagram before some sort of altar affair on which several indistinguishable items stood. His voice, which was actually not very loud, rose and fell in a rhythmic chant of gibberish, which was delivered with uh, S-C-H? What the fuck is this? Uh, I guess sanch passion? Passionate intensity? I, I fucked this up. Oh, it's sconched. I don't know. I, I, there's a typo here. Passionate intensity that is meaning was frighteningly, that its meaning was frighteningly obvious. And I put here, what the fuck? So first they said it was like this person sounds like they're dying but then when they actually go in there it's like his voice is not that loud so what the fuck was he doing you know what i mean like was it like a demon well, like yeah, a was devil? that him or was that an entity speaking exactly so i put here what what the fuck what the fuck and after this ritual parsons would write in his diary i have i have been suffered to pass through an ordeal of human love and jealousy i have found a a staunch companion and comrade in ron so this guy liked getting cucked bro Ron and I are to continue with our plans for the order. And Parsons was known to invoke spirits called elementals because of their association with the four elements of the ancients, earth, air, water, fire. Mm -hmm. According to Crowley, to summon an elemental requires a large amount of magical energy, the kind said to be generated by by an eighth degree working. The eighth degree being a solo sexual right. So jerk the fuck off so this dude's just like bro can you imagine this guy's just just viciously like oh yeah like trying to summon like what are you doing I was like, trying to summon bart's a bell oh, like, so <laughs> it's just <laughs> what the fuck bro you so it's supposed mean? to be like a a build-up so you have to edge for a very long time while focusing your mind on your goal and then you know when you release you basically either uh, i don't know what goes into the the ritual but i'm assuming you have to burn it to release it Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said that it got to a point where he was no longer using that and he started using blood magic where he started substituting his own blood for, you know, semen in the ritual, which I oh. think is a higher order than uh, using orgone energy as uh, LeVay and many others would call it. Interesting. So, yeah, I put here. So jerk the night away, bros. And spanking it. <laughs> so Parsons wrote the invocation of lesser forces is exact since love doesn't usually enter in much in one sense far more dangerous than the invocation of gods he also wrote primary methods for this are one goetia daemonic two planetary clavic uh, uh, clavicle of solo three enochian elemental heirs four solar guardian angel 
I have found Anakian the best, although complicated. He is referring to, of course, John D's Anakian system of mm-hmm. magic. Okay. Which is and, its own like sing songy language in order to uh, make yeah. contact with the the angels and the fallen. Mm-hmm. So what was the uh, the last one you said? Not uh, not the solar Anakian. guardian angel. So I'm assuming that's the Abramelin ritual. Prop, prop, yeah, that that was the whole thing with Crowley, right? And his Abramelin working, where he fucked it up because he was Crowley yes. and couldn't like discipline mm-hmm. himself enough to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, it was talking. It was about talking to your quote unquote guardian angel. Yeah, you're supposed to summon and your guardian angel and have it attached to you, which is supposed to elevate you to like one or two steps below the godhead, essentially. Hmm. Well, fuck all that shit. <laughs> um, the system Parsons referred to is a form of magic founded by Doctor John D and Sir Edward Kelly in the 16th century. Anakian magic is not sexual in nature, but of course, you can't have magic without the sex to. You know, because these are guys, that's what they're all about. And, you know, Nerds the whole thing was sex. Yeah, the whole thing with sex magic is, right, at the point of orgasm, they believe that you're connected to the universe, to the, the cosmic consciousness. And your subconsciousness comes forward. You imprint things on that subconscious at that moment of orgasm. You It comes back down. You forget about it. And whatever you showed your subconscious is supposed to manifest itself in other ways in the real world. Because at the point of ejaculation you are again connected to the universe the source the one the godhead whatever it is so that, this, again this is what they believe you're supposed to basically take the energy from your sacral chakra pull it up through your spine sack attach sack. it sack. attach <laughs> it to your crown and then i believe depending on the working itself you either release it from your crown or you hold <laughs> it in yeah yeah there's another one uh, ma- ma- magical masturbation which we'll get into later because i thought it was fucking hilarious yeah um that's, that's the principle of fucking chaos magic. That's pretty much it. It's just jerking off and staring at paper sigils and trying to manifest something. <laughs> so John D., a godly man and a Christian who admired Enoch, was born in 1527 and was a bright boy. Christian my ass. Uh, yeah. Um, he, he was well-read and eventually became proficient in various sciences. He also studied the hermetic sciences and was appointed to be the royal astrologer to Elizabeth I. D would be imprisoned by Queen Mary after giving her an unfavorable horoscope reading. Elizabeth pardoned him. He also acted as an agent of espionage, signing his secret communications to her as 007. So we have the OG 007, two balls, one cane, was motherfucking John D. Okay, hey, so Hollywood, you fucking reptilian cowards, make that bond. I will watch that. Yeah, can you imagine, bro? I want to see the John D. Bond film. That'd be fucking dope. (laughs) Q is just some, like, proper monk that's showing him all of his weapons. Here we have the crossbow with the cyanide tip. Using somatics and shit to, like, fucking move rocks and stuff. That'd be fucking crazy. Spoiler alert, John D. is actually uh, uh, fucking um, Van Helsing. He's Nick Cage, bro. Well, Nick Cage has to play him. That's that's the law. absolutely. Yeah. Oh, he's gonna play. Uh, is he gonna play Dracula here soon in twenty twenty? In Renfield, in the film Renfield, yeah, he's playing yeah. Dracula. Which I, you saw the image, right? Amazing, so good, fucking amazing, so good. We have here. Do as thou uh, cage shall be the whole of the law. <laughs> he would. Uh, so John D would marry at the age of forty seven and would continue independent research. By fifteen eighty one, he felt he had exhausted all known sources of worldly knowledge, and that he the only way to continue his quest for knowledge was to turn to the otherworldly. How fucking egotistical do you have to be to be like, yeah, I've already learned everything that there is to know. I need to start fucking with the occult. 
is it I mean? egotism or is it uh, you know the fact that he's pretty much isolated to this one area? You, you're you're more or less isolated to the British Isles. So I'm assuming Scotland, Ireland at that point in time, maybe France, maybe Germany if you're lucky. But you're not traveling to the east. I don't even think Egypt was discovered by Westerners at that point. So you know fuck all about Egyptian or Tibetan or any of that shit. So of course he's like, I've read every book in the library forty five times. I'm I'm tired of <laughs> of the known sciences. Let's go fuck with demons yeah yeah exactly let's go talk to angels so <laughs> d would acquire several magical shoe stones with the intent of taking up crystal gazing he wouldn't be able to do it and concluded that he needed an assistant that assistant would be the crop-eared wizard edward kelly who before all this was found to be dabbling in magical workings and occultic shit so that's mm -hmm. why they call him the crop-eared wizard and he didn't have his ears cropped he did have his ears cropped. Okay. So the crop, hence the name, Anton, the cropped eared wizard. I didn't know if it was an ironic thing, like calling no. a fat guy slim or, you know, a tall no. guy. A tall... <laughs> <laughs> so after one night where Kelly had a vision, Dee would conclude that he would assume the role of scribe, recording what Kelly relayed he was seeing. According to Kelly, Angel showed him large tablets bearing unusual letters and also that they needed to... <laughs> Sounds very Joseph Smithy, doesn't it? There's a little no, Mormon connection. Uh, again, I was going to read through just like one of my notes. I put uh, bearing unusual letters and that they also needed to fuck each other's wives. <laughs> <laughs> so could you, could you imagine, bro? Uh, he's scrying there in a mirror, right? He's uh, just looking uh, into the ether, right? Is what they're doing. And yeah. he's like, huh? And and, and, and he's like, uh, what, what's up, dude? Uh, oh, well, <laughs> you're not going to believe this one. Uh, tell me. No, you're really not going to believe this one. What is it, dude? I'm, uh, I'm embarrassed to say, I think you're, you might get mad, but it's not me saying it, it's the angels. <laughs> they, they're the ones describing your wife's voluptuous, juicy ass. So, uh, we got a wife swap, bro. <laughs> like, how do you bring, can you imagine the angels on the other side? Like, dude, just, just fucking, just say it. Like, uh, they're not going to fucking fall for it. Dude, you're an angelic being, bro. Just fucking stop, say stop, it. Stop, stop, stop. No, no, sure, stop, stop. You must fuck each other's wives. It's, oh, my God. Goodness. Uh, the rest of them are like the impractical <laughs> jokers meme where everyone's just like, oh, he fucking said it. Yeah. <laughs> it was just a posse of like demons or some shit in the background just like telling these guys to do weird shit. Now so. say you have to fuck each other's wives. <laughs> oh, that's it. I'm, I'm making that meme to promo this fucking episode. Ab absolutely, bro. Fucking clip away. Uh, so we have here these letters that the quote unquote angels revealed to the duo the would become. Key. Yeah, would become the magical Enochian language, claimed to be the oldest of them all. Language of the angels. Kelly was so afraid during the transmission because mere mention of these letters would invoke demons. And we have here, after the completion of the books, the angel next, the angel dictated the uh, the 30 Aethers or Aries and, and their 19 calls, which are for summoning angels to the caller through scrying or viewing one is able to see what is in the aether on the other side the first calls were considered so powerful that the angel presented to them backwards to avoid conjuring the guardians of the corresponding aether so pretty much the course the aethers are these uh again just how emanationists believe that there was concentric circles the 30 aethers are pretty much spherical in nature and it's just 30 different dimensions how the gnostics believe that there's every celestial body is guarded by a planetary demon right and every every demon has its own dimension which is the orbit that it 
surrounds. So the it's Aethers. important to note too that uh, the reason that D was afraid uh, is because you know obviously they told them they had to wife swap, and the problem with that was that <laughs> Kelly's wife was actually just Kelly in a wig. <laughs> Kelly didn't have a wife. <laughs> Kelly just walked around. Hi, I'm what Kelly's wife. Oh, oh, I, I, we're gonna be wife swapping today, big boy. Why don't you come over here and put it in my butt? That's why he was so hesitant to tell. Absolutely, uh, <laughs> damn it. So, <laughs> if the Anarchians commanded, I guess I have to. So let me, uh, before I click on anything here. So tradition holds that every Aether or, or most are guarded by harsh angels or even demons who have no patience with mere men or magicians. And eventually the angel provided Kelly with English, English translations. And well, that some, was convenient of him, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Some other notable messages presented to the duo were... One, that Jesus was not God. Two, that no prayer ought to be made to Jesus. Three, that there is no sin. Four, man's soul reincarnates. Five, the generation of mankind from Adam and Eve is not historical, but allegorical. So I found that interesting that they said this. These angels were talking shit about God behind his back. Mm-hmm. And well, if, if, I mean, if the Adam and Eve story is to be believed, then we're all inbred. Yes, absolutely. Incest, again. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it, that. That's a hard pill to swallow, everybody. But hey, same thing absolutely. with the post flood, because like uh, mm-hmm. you know, Noah had to get drunk to fuck his daughters. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I want to point out some of this. I believe to be bullshit. Kelly would correct. <laughs> Kelly would correct an angel that would start speaking to him in like Greek, and then uh, Kelly would be like, "No, this is gibberish. Don't talk to me in Greek." Like he's correcting the angel. <laughs> Like, what are you saying? Like, tell it to me in English or whatever the fuck language. He's giving him the Ron Burgundy. You know I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> Can you imagine him just like, mm, no, stop that. Stop that. You, yeah, I don't understand you. Just, is he, you tell- is he ritualistically <laughs> masturbating at this point in time to yeah. try and like channel this stuff? And he's just like, it's gibberish. I don't get this. Just Can you, can you speak a language of normal people? And he's like, what the fuck's wrong with you? No, he just told me to, that we need to fuck each other's wives. So, <laughs> and I put on here, eventually they would be told to swap wives. And then I go, uh, imagine D trying to explain this to his wife. He's like, honey, you're not going to believe this shit. But an angel told me, check this out. An angel told me I need to be cucked. Okay. That's, that, I don't know. It's part of, of my divine manifestation destiny, whatever you want to call it. But I, it needs to happen. So. She has to pretend to act all mad like she's not into it, but she's just like, I've been eyeing him up all week, so. Yeah. And we have here, like, and imagine, like, Edward, like, would always, like, make comments about his wife. Like, dude, your wife wife has some nice tits, bro. Like, awesome tits. Like, or, like, something like. like, Your children will surely never starve at the size of your wife's memories. That's a weird compliment and oddly phrased, but thanks, Kelly. I appreciate it. Thanks, bro. Don't mention it. I really mean it, though. Her milk is a wonderful her bosom is the most uh, righteous bosom I've ever seen. Uh, we have here... bounties of milk jugs. <laughs> Noting again the synchronicities, Kelly would eventually snap and rob D of a large sum of money and skip town with none other than his wife. Oh, his wife. How ironic because the same thing would happen to Parsons. Hubbard would run away with money, all his money, all and Parsons' his yacht. money, his yacht. And his wife, okay, his partner at the time. So Crowley claimed that he was the reincarnation of Kelly, although he didn't steal his wife. So yeah, wouldn't uh, wouldn't LRH be the reincarnation of Kelly then? And then uh, and, yeah, Parsons mm-hmm. would be the reincarnation of D. Do yes. you do you have the uh, 
the info about the, the, the sailboat or the yacht? Yeah, we get to that uh, after the Babylon working. Okay. But also Crowley mentioned that he was the reincarnation of Elvis Levi, so or Levy, whatever you want to call him. Uh, and there are scientists who who say that the Enochian language is actually a language and not just gibberish. So I found that interesting, and I just wanted to point that out because I think it's bullshit. It could have not been bullshit. I don't I don't know, but they say that it's an actual language that it's ancient that we know nothing about, but yeah. it's not just gibberish. You know, sounds and letters put together. I'm not a cartographer. So we, I could. I really like. I don't know how to. Cartographers make maps. That's maps. You're right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Linguistic, I guess. A linguistic yeah, master. Something like that. So the Babylon working, right? The infamous Babylon working, January of 1946 to March of 1946. It was done in two parts. Okay, two different parts, which I'll be putting together, like D and Kelly. Parsons would find himself in trouble with the infamous Babylon, the Enochian whore of Babylon. Babylon as the harlot is a symbol of the material world. According to Parsons, Babylon is the Gnostic Sophia. The Greek name Babylon is derived from the Semitic Bab-il, meaning the gate of God. Every holy city believed it was the center of the world, the mystical center where the gate between the upper and the lower worlds are located. And... Using the angelic language of Dean Kelly, Parsons would plan his magical operation, keeping diligent records per Crowley's or Crowley's constant advice. And I'm going to get into the, the whole thing of these 12 days, Parsons says 11, whatever. The working began January 4th of 1946 at 9 p.m. Parsons would write, I followed this procedure for 11 days from January 4th to the 15th, which is actually, again, 12 days, but whatever. It's He maybe extended it a day, and it was actually 12. Who gives a fuck? Parsons would begin choosing one of the squares from the Enochian Air Tablet. It is a 12 by 13 tablet, one for each element. He never said which square he picked. Also, some details were left out of the working, perhaps to keep people from trying to do this ritual as well. And it's, mind you, it's a ritual that he designed because he wanted to make up his own magical system. So it's entirely possible that he left out certain key components because a lot of magicians believe that when you create something like that, it has a direct line to you. So if he mm -hmm. leaves everything in there, then he's essentially leaving himself open to magical attack. Mm -hmm. So that that's just one idea. We have here, he prepared and consecrated his air dagger and an actual dagger that was the special talisman of the operation. He would go on to do various invocations and conjurations while L. Ron Hubbard served as the scribe. And mind you, it's a bunch of bullshit and a bunch of just chants and invocations, which I didn't write down. It's more or, or less two dudes hopped up on peyote in the desert just fucking making up gobbledygook to each other. Jerking off on parchment. That's it. Yeah, because even, even Parsons <laughs> and Crowley both uh, had a back and forth where they're talking. They're like, you know, most magic is just bullshit, right? And the other half is yeah. like conmen. There were tw uh, there were symbols copied onto virgin parchment. The symbols were of the seven planetary signs, 12 zodiacal, zodiac, zodiacal. Did I say that right? Zodiacal? Zodiacal? Da -da 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 -da. I've honestly never heard that word. The zodiac signs. Yeah, I know, but I've, I've only ever heard someone just say zodiac. Like, I thought it was zodiacal, Zod maybe? Zodiacal? Yeah, I guess. Whatever. Who gives a fuck? And the 12 signs, all right? All right, Anton, the 12 zodiac signs. Yes. And an Anakian letter in the center of that. 
Parsons would recite various invocations from memory, one of them being the invocation of the Bornless One, etc., etc., a bunch of baloney. And there are some discrepancies in the record keeping. At one point, he invoked blank by blank and blank to visible appearance. There has been debate to fill in the blanks by the Thelema and all these other, the mm-hmm. OTO, Golden Dawn, etc. <laughs> and this is my favorite part right here. Parsons' most clear invocation was the quote-unquote invocation of wand with material basis on talisman. Now, use your imagination, ladies and gentlemen, and non-binary beings that are listening to this. Others. The wand is the the dick. Yeah, yeah. You're, uh, you're, <laughs> your mighty obelisk that reaches towards the heaven. He's laying on the ground with a big old boner. For some people, it's two inches. For some people, it's three, four, five, whatever it is. But that... The, I put here, dude is jerking off in the middle of the desert in front of Hubbard trying to summon a demon. LOL. And hey, LOL, Richie, are you watching? Are you watching? We got anything yet? <laughs> Pay attention. Look at me. Make eye contact. Uh, talismanic magic is very interesting. If, if, if uh, Whoever's listening, if you haven't checked out the Picatrix, uh, if you want to have a good laugh, that's a book about talismanic magic and... and uh, the way that these people are able to magically charge these talismans. Again, it's all the, the same thing, but mind you, this dude is doing this in front of Hubbard. I mean, can you imagine trying to keep a hard on in front of Hubbard? And, and like, does he look at you? Like, do you turn around, give your back to him? Like, do you sit down like spread Eagle and just like jerk off furiously? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you think this would have gone down? Anton? like if, if you were, it won't Parsons... work if you keep looking at me, you have to look at my back. No, no, don't look at me. <laughs> He's just like, <clears throat> Uh, uh, did did you come yet, uh, Parsons? Hubbard, no, not yet. Hubbard, Hubbard's just like, <laughs> do you always make these weird noises when you jerk off? No, the chance. Leave me alone. <laughs> so, so we so have here. It's kind of arid out here today. I wonder if it'll rain soon. Are you making small talk? <laughs> <laughs> He's like looking at the scenery. Which... Oh, oh look, on. there's a rabbit over there. How joyous! <laughs> it's getting kind of cold and outside here. You know? uh, we have here. Oh, no, I'm January... shrinking. <laughs> On January 5th, Parsons continued the ritual and noticed a strong windstorm beginning suddenly about the middle of the first invocation. The entire thing took about two hours, and he might, he might, there's things that he might have done it two times in a row, okay? Uh, it would, the, it, it working would continue. What the fuck? The working would continue. At one point, they would invoke using, how you said earlier, blood, uh, using blood material basis. So some say it was a substitute. You said it was might, might have been his actual blood. I, no, no, I was saying it's a substitute for orgone energy, which is semen. Mm. Oh, well. But it's supposed to be uh, possibly be stronger. But I think, I have my own theory on that. It's because his dick was chafed from jerking it in the desert with all that sand. <laughs> He's like, you know what? I'm just going to cut myself. I'm tired of jerking off with sandpaper. He's just like, just fucking ejaculating air at one point. It's like, my foreskin is literally <laughs> full of sand at this point. I'm tired of it. <laughs> on January 9th, he invoked twice replenishing material basis so you had to have a boner but you wouldn't you know ejaculate you have to deny yourself that right because the sperm needs to be absorbed by the body he would be magically masturbating in front of hubbard lol so can you you all right dude yes i'm just holding it in doing my kegels He's like squeezing his cheeks in and out, just like, like <laughs> pressing his gooch or something in. Like, oh, this this is allegedly helps to maintain an erection. I, I read that in Women's Health somewhere. My wife had one in the can. <laughs> On January 10th is when the, when I put here the shit hit the fan. 
Parsons would be awakened by a loud nine knocks, which are symbolic and apparently in a book written by Whiteley Stryber titled Communion, which would signify the existence of his other worldly visitors. The story is supposedly, quote-unquote, nonfiction. The nine knocks mean to proceed. Three knocks means the master mason is ready to enter the lodge. I, I don't know. Okay, that's just what was written in the book. And Parsons would continue the invocations for the next couple of days. On the 14th, there would be a paranormal activity. Which one? Because anything after three was just kind of terrible. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. The electricity would go out and Hubbard would be strongly struck on the right shoulder and would have a candle knocked out of his hand. They would observe. They would have observed a brownish yellow light about seven feet high in the kitchen that Parnish that Parsons would banish with his magical sword. I don't know if it was his dick or his actual magical no, sword. No. So that was the thing about Parsons is everyone that he encountered that lived with him or visited his house remarked on the fact that Parsons had to have a sword or dagger in every fucking room in the house. Really? No. Yeah. Whether that well, he was also huge into fencing. He, oh. he was into all of the gentlemanly stuff, but it wasn't a uh, a foil that he used. It was probably like a an actual like magical working. Uh, so not not a broadsword, it's not a two hander, but a single handed like uh, Arthurian I, knight. I like to think he uses dick, so he's just swinging his dick around at this orb. I'm banishing you! Ah! Ah! <laughs> just do, do. and Parsons is just like, ah, oh, my arm, dude. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like whatever. So Hubbard's shoulder would remain paralyzed for the rest of the night. Hubbard's like, dude, I, I, you don't have to punch me in the shoulder because I fucked your wife, okay? Stop blaming it on a demon. I get it. I'm a dick. These, I put here, these dudes were fucking with some dark arts, otherworldly shit, man. Okay, because this is it's just next level stuff. I think, you know what I mean? Like, I think this is what everybody really thinks about when it comes to, like, paranormal activity, like actual poltergeist activity, and they're mm -hmm. bringing this shit in to their lives and, and, and working with it, which is horrible. I think this is... is Again, this is just next level stuff. There was an eerie tension in the house that night. Hubbard would have an astral vision describing an old enemy of Parsons. Eventually, Parsons would perform the license to depart and the spirit would return to where it came from. After the working, Parsons would say he noted, nothing seems to have happened. On January 18th, he would go into the desert with Hubbard to relax at sunset. The physical tension he was feeling would go away. Parsons would turn to Hubbard and say, it is done. I don't know if that's how he talked, but... You know. I've been using this voice for passes the whole time. <laughs> but, uh. So he says, it is done. Okay. And I think it was during one of the nights, too, of the working, uh, a a lamp was uh, uh, knocked over and broken. Mm -hmm. And I believe Hubbard means lamp in Anakian. Uh, I believe I read that in one of the things, which I found kind of weird. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that should that should right there tell you where Parsons' mind was. Like, even if it was just mm -hmm. a subconscious twinge of jealousy, he's like, I need this guy fucking gone. Yeah, yeah. So, again, it was like the, the, the angels telling him, like, you know, fuck this guy. You know, he needs to be whatever. But he kept working well, the on himself. The thing with Hubbard, while he was, like, like, in his own confessionals, was like, I don't fucking buy magic. It's all just bullshit. Which, I mean, if anyone knows bullshit, it's Elron fucking Hubbard. Yeah, exactly. It was a uh, <laughs> Yeah, but, uh, you know, Parsons believed him to be a, m like, strong magical adept. 
And I think that's why as Parsons probably in a little bit in his head was like, I'm just going to keep using this guy for his energy. And when he's done, I will banish him as well the way I banish everything else that I summon. Uh, it was also remarked by everyone in the Agape Lodge that they believed that Parsons was just interested in summoning anything. Like he, as his, mm-hmm. you know, being a scientist, just wanted results. Especially if you're somebody exactly. that deals with explosives, you're used to the whole bang, boom, ooh, ah, something, of science. Yeah. yeah. So you, yeah. you're trying to get any sort of reaction. Well, and and that's what I relate magic to, really, because, you know, play Dungeons and Dragons, you have like this whole mind theater type of thing going on Mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, Harry Potter. I think that's what a lot of people think magic is. And I think maybe at one point it was that, but it's gotten harder because of the demystification of the humanism movement and all this stuff, which obviously I talk about a lot. But I do think it was like that back then. And now you just got to... The world's a lot smaller you know, than it was back then now, too. You have to it's do like the Macarena we... now while facing north, you know, uh, while you simultaneously jerk off and you invoke Pan and you, uh, you know, jerk off onto this piece of paper and then you turn around three times, loop-de-doop, and, you know, you give it the little rabbit ears and you tie it up and then you, you might have Bartzabelle or some shit like that. Who, who the fuck knows? I think that's... Spit crazy. on the ground, clap a couple times, <laughs> you know. They, uh, so... <clears throat> We have here on February 23rd, 1946, Parsons would write to Crowley that his quote-unquote elemental has arrived. In comes Marjorie Cameron, okay? Red red hair, green eyes. The working was supposedly still underway, but Cameron would not find out till much later. They would both marry in October, on October of that year, in October of that year, eight months after meeting. On the day of Cameron's arrival, Parsons recorded that he quote-unquote invoked the goddess Babylon with the aid of his magical partner. Some people say it was Hubbard. Some people say it was actually Cameron. And this would consist of them being in bed for two weeks after Cameron would return to New York uh, to break up with her boyfriend that she had at the time, and she would eventually return. The day after she left, Parsons would go on to the mode. Mojave Desert and jerk off to invoke Babylon again. So I I don't know if he jerked off, but I'm sure he did. Uh, it's a crucial component, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So again, the solo right, the solo right is masturbation. So he would go yes. on to be communicated with and would write uh, this down as quote unquote the Book of Babylon. In this, there would be directions from Babylon to the expected quote unquote magical child. The Book of Babylon is not to be confused with the record of the Babylon working. So he had this communication with this otherworldly entity that was talking to him about magical children, which plays a role later on. And in March 1946, Cameron would return and would have to prove herself to Parsons. She did this by providing a sign. That sign would be that she claimed seeing a silver cigar-shaped UFO. And then I put here, she saw a flying dick. Yep. So Jeff Bezos's rocket is actually also a time machine, and it, yes. it went back, and that's what she saw was this big, giant longwanger. So I mean, it's it's appropriate too because that's what they're doing, you know, the the, the staff of the you know whatever, and again rockets, mm-hmm. Parsons. So who the fuck knows? Hubbard would return with a description of a vision he had had because he apparently he was away at the VA doing some other stuff because he was in the Navy, just like mm-hmm. how Cameron was in the Navy. Okay, there's some connection there, and somebody else in their life was in the Navy as well. Hubbard well, would they, return... They worked on... Uh, when they built the the, the jet engines before, uh, like, going back to earlier in the episode, uh, they, they worked on a couple naval ships because that was what the first jet engine tests were, where they just slapped them on a couple planes mm. um, and basically launched them off of aircraft carriers. And apparently, uh, during one of the tests, they, uh, when they when they built the early rockets, it just spit soot and smoke everywhere. Oh, yeah, the so yellow have, stuff or something. Yeah, yeah, so you have all of these naval officers dressed up in full dress just like... Fix the smoke and you got yeah. a fucking deal. Call us when you <laughs> fix the smoke. 
Hubbard would return with a description of a vision he had had. He claimed to have a vision of a quote-unquote a savage and beautiful woman riding naked on a great cat-like beast. This is also the cover of the book Stranger Than You Think, which was the book that Parsons was obsessed with. After continuing the working, Parsons would complete an invocation where he would burn the Anakian air tablet using the first part of the ritual. He would also smash a small statue of Pan, which had been his favorite possession. When he did this, he claimed that the same instant he did, the roof on his guest house caught fire and was damaged. So, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Okay. After, uh, let's see here. Uh, Crowley was pretty pissed off at Parsons and how reckless he had been. He wrote to him on March 15, 1946, leading Parsons to turn over the operation of the, of the Agape Lodge to Roy Leffingwell. Who had actually, uh, so one of the, that was one of the bigger things too, is that pa Crowley wanted to have an interaction with Parsons in real life. But it wasn't mm. possible uh, due to like you know like the, the war and all the ongoing other shit as well. Like Mussolini uh, himself shut down the Abbey of, of yeah in Italy. Yeah, how, how much of a bastard do you have to be for Mussolini to kick your ass out of Italy? Shit, bro, that's crazy, man. But uh, yeah, he he uh, so he basically was getting really pissed off with Parsons, and uh, part of that was that that Don Quixote poem and shit, and was just like, dude, mm -hmm. you're not. You're, you're fucking up, man. But remember, that was Crowley's bread and butter. Crowley was penniless and despised by most of Europe at this point in time. So most of his money is coming from the Agape Lodge in yes. California. Yes. So Absolutely. he's like, dude, please don't fuck up my revenue stream. Please. The whole purpose of this working, the Babylon working, was to birth a child. Oh, let, me, let me edit this here. I put to bird a caca to bird a child. Jeez, this is a late night uh, writing of episodes. To birth a child, the moon child into whom Babylon would incarnate, also known as the homunculus or little little man. I'm a little man. The child was said to be, quote unquote, mightier than all kings of the earth. The perversion and unorthodox acts of sex to create the elemental or the magical children uh, was part, you know, was part of this. The perversion right. and orthodoxy was uh, to attribute to this. Uh, some thought Parsons was one of these children, but he thought otherwise. And around this time, Cameron was said to be pregnant with Parsons child, but she had an abortion with his consent and other abortions after the fact. And Hoffman Parsons writes in his book, them. Parsons paid for them as well. They yeah. mentioned that in the book. Uh, Parsons, uh, there's a conspiracy, and, and Hoffman wrote it in his uh, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare, that supposedly uh, she had turned over the fetal tissue over to the government and that they supposedly had the homunculi. Again, I wasn't able to find connections to this, uh, but I don't know. They, they She turned over this. Uh, fetal tissue over to the to the government, right? So mm -hmm. the whole conspiracy is that the government knows about this shit, and they're just, you know, they say that they inserted L. Ron Hubbard as like this spy in there and to watch him and you know to infiltrate. I believe it was Carmen, one of the two. Hubbard Car said that, yeah. Hubbard was like, I, yeah, I was actually shit. a spy. It's like, fuck you, Hubbard. No, you weren't. You were getting some. You were getting some tail, and you just yeah. were like, I'm gonna hang out here for a little while. This place seems cool. The abortion implied that Parsons was waiting for a full-grown woman to come forth. He would start to believe Cameron was not actually Babylon, even though she would go later on to, to refer to herself as Babylon. Not nine months later, but nine years later. Now, 
I want to add something as well uh, here that, uh, mind you, by the I believe it was the time that, so we have the Call of Cthulhu being invented uh, in 1928. And I also, I didn't look it up, but I'll look it up now, where the Gnostic, the, the Nag Hammadi library was around the same time. The, the, this, the discovery of it was around the same the same time. Let me look it up here. Uh, well, actually, it was in 1945. Never mind. It, it's uh, well, relatively close. So yeah, during the Babylon working... Like 10 years, right? No, so during the 19... Because 19, the Babylon working was during 1946. In 1945, the Nag Hammadi library was discovered. Oh, so it was a year prior, yeah. Yeah, so again, weird shit. You have 1947 or 1948 where the it was Roswell happened. So mm-hmm. we'll get into that. But just, again, the synchronicities. And I want to bring something up real quick from Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. Uh, to, that has to do with the homunculi. And I, I'm not able to to prove this with anything else other than, than this here. We have here... I'm looking for it here real quick. Anyways, the supposedly during the testing of the atomic bombs in New Mexico, the there would be scientists that would oh, here we go. Parsons, Hubbard, and the OTO knew that during the first atomic bomb blast at the Trinity site in New Mexico, the land of enchantment, a large steel cylinder nicknamed Jumbo by construction workers had been placed near ground zero. They were obsessed with the idea of the cylinder had been a means of radioactively animating a tiny mannequin known as known in alchemy as the homunculus, and that this homunculus represented the first creation of artificial life on Earth since Rabbi Lowe's go- golem. So, again, this is something that Hoffman claims that when they were testing the first atomic bomb, they put a little cylinder and they were trying to radioactively, radioactively come forth with a homunculi. How true is that? I don't know, but it's fucking interesting. If you have even one occultist on the team, you know, responsible for launching and setting up that, that bomb, I'm willing to bet that there were a couple things besides a homunculus set up that are like, well, we're going to, you know, split an atom and do something that's never been done before and harness mm-hmm. this great power. So I'm going to use a little bit of that for my own workings. And who was the one behind that? Uh, oh, it was Oppenheimer. I, I was going to say Warner Von Braun, but it was Oppenheimer, the one where he where he I am become the Bog- death destroyer yeah, of worlds. The Bhagavad Gita. And, yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to add that in there because uh, on the stream on April 7th, we'll be talking about the homunculi further in depth. And I just wanted to throw in there because it relates to Parsons. So Parsons' final years, 1946 to 1952, as we approach the end here, On February 20th, 1946, in between two parts of the working, Hubbard, Betty, and Parsons would form a company, Allied Enterprises. Hubbard had the idea of buying some yachts in Florida and selling them in California for profit. Parsons would would put up his entire life savings of $20,000 at the time. Remember, this is the 40s at the time. $20,000. Hubbard would put up a measly $1,183.91, and Betty would contribute absolutely nothing. And you she can already tell her magical juices. <laughs> you can already tell where this is headed. By <laughs> June, Parsons went to Florida after Hubbard and Betty, where he would confront them. The duo managed to sail off trying to escape and would force Parsons to invoke Bartzabel, a very powerful demon, a form of Mars. 
and maybe it worked, maybe it didn't, but they would be forced onto shore when they would be quote unquote struck by a sudden squall off the coast, which ripped off his sails and forced him back to port. And he writes, he was writing to Crowley. I have them well tied up. Okay. I don't know if he physically had them tied up or not, but uh, I believe Betty gives an account where she literally thought that they were going to fucking die. Like I didn't think that we were going to make it back to shore. Okay. So mind you, they're, they're, they're working with elementals, perhaps things from the Typhonian order, like all these different things that they were, that they were messing with. So very, very dark arts, powerful magic. If you want to call it that, which that tells me that Parsons at least subconsciously didn't want her to die. He might have wanted he might have wanted LRH to die, but I, I don't think he was willing to put the energy out there to be like, okay, I'm gonna I want you to hurt them, but I don't I'm not I'm not willing to go all the way on that. Yeah. They would eventually cheat Parsons out of one boat and his money. Parsons would go on to sue both of them and recover two of the yachts. Hubbard and Betty would go on to marry, have a daughter, and Hubbard would establish what we know today as Scientology, a cult. Okay. It is a cult. Um I don't care what anybody else says. At this point, it's surpassed cult into religious status. It's arguably the biggest religion in the United States. Really? Uh, I mean, Christianity is still abounding, but I don't count, you know, non-Orthodox people as actual Christians, so. Maybe due to his financial ruin, Parsons on August 20th sent a formal letter of resignation to Crowley to opt out of the OTO. He did not give an explanation and simply said it was of his own will. Parsons would go on to bootleg explosively legally for extra income. He would leave his job with the Vulcan Powder Company where he was working at the time because he was offered another job with the North American Aviation Corporation where he would work until 1948. He would then be hired elsewhere. He also took on various consulting gigs with various different organizations. In a letter dated June 19, 1949, he would say he lost his clearance for membership in the OTO for a publicly circulating Lieber Oz, a statement of the rights of man. And you can read that if you want, but it's pretty much, you know, do without will, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Right. On May 17, 1948, Parsons would have some more bad karma thrown his way throughout all of this. He would have his government clearance revoked because according to him of his, of his associations with a quote unquote, a religious cult believed to advocate sexual perversion. The FBI called it a mythic love cult. Parsons would insist it was, dedicated to the freedom and liberty of the individual. His FBI file would state it was because of his association with known communists. Cameron would leave him soon after this. And so, yes, yeah, what you had mentioned earlier, he was a, you know, a communist sympathizer. He was involved with different people and the FBI had a file on him. I mean, they, they, they were keeping tabs on him because he had a lot of secrets that they didn't want to get out, especially at the time of war, you know, all this stuff that's going on. On Halloween 1948, Babylon would, quote-unquote, call on Parsons, urging him to resume his magic with a K. Parsons would go on to be, begin working on a 17-day working of the wands. So, you know, I put, this two is just whacking off for 17 days to just, you know what I mean? Just 17 days. Can you imagine him just like, 17 days? Oh, my God. My dick can't take any more. It stopped being fun after day three. <laughs> so the climax would be Babylon's manifestation in a dream. He would have Smith christen him Balerion Armilus El Dajal Antichrist as he took the oath of the abyss. This name was a various iterations of the word Antichrist in various different languages. 
At the end of the 17 days, Babylon instructed him on an quote-unquote astral working or an out-of-body experience, which supposedly was easy for him to do, where he would go into the sunset with her sign and into the night past accursed and desolate places and cyclopean ruins, and so came to the city of Chorazin, and there a great tower of black basalt was raised was raised that was part of the castle whose further battlements ruled over the gulf of stars so he had this out of body astral vision he's going through there charazen was a small town on the sea of galilee that according to the gospel story jesus cursed when the citizens would not repent later legends claim that the antichrist would be born there the black basilate ruins of the city's old synagogues are still standing today okay so I think I'm that, pretty that, sure that, that is that no the the temple that's supposed to get rebuilt in Revelation is in Jerusalem. That's the right? Temple of Solomon, I believe. Is it? I think. Okay. Don't 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 quote me on that because I don't know 100, percent but I'm pretty sure it's the Temple of Solomon. I don't know. Uh, probably it, it's a temple. Okay, that's the one that they're saying that they're rebuilt. Right. The oath of the abyss involved the total denial of the world and detachment from ego. It took Parsons 40 days where he would emerge to claim grade of a quote unquote master of the temple. He was 33 when he took this oath. Crowley was 34. Uh, the crossing of the abyss is part of the Enochian system where you must transverse or traverse the aethers in reverse. Now, Crowley would have done the same and supposedly was possessed in the process, like full on possession, and the mm-hmm. and his gay boyfriend that was there was like, "Oh my God, Noid Crowley, bird. what's wrong with you, bro?" <laughs> He's like, "I am, uh, I am the Chorazon, or it was it was a different demon." But anyways, he was, Cor- I think it was Corazon, some shit like that. Yeah, uh, but yeah, oh my God, Crowley, are you okay? Oh my God, you know, like he was like just trying to whatever. It was, it was a full on possession, which he miraculously came through to the other side, and. After no, the I 40- am a demon. Now bring me some bread and wine, for I hunger and thirst. Bring me some butts, preferably male <laughs> And your butts. cock. <laughs> After the 40 days, Parsons wrote a two-page document titled The Book of Antichrist. In it is the prediction of the manifestation of Babylon upon the earth within seven years. He also predicted that, the entire na- that an entire nation would embrace the Lima. Babylon told him that this would only happen if... He would survive the next seven years, which he didn't. No, okay. no. Spoiler. He, yeah, spoiler. He did not. So it's kind of fucked up that this demon's like, hey, dude, just got to survive for another seven years. But deep down inside like that, demon was like, this motherfucker's not going to make it till. <laughs> you know, this, like, son of, this son of a bitch has six months. Oh, my God. What an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> it's like it's the same demons that were talking to Dean Kelly. Like, yeah. Like, tell him he's got to survive for another seven years and it's like uh but we both just fucking do it you know what i mean like lifeline's right there it's like yeah i'm fucking aware i'm looking at it right now (laughs) so so it's just uh, these two are just the reincarnation in each separate life and these demons just constantly fuck with them it's ren and stimpy bro they're just like fucking with them like tom and jerry or some shit like god (laughs) you're destined to do this for eternity uh, they're like outcasts like somewhere in hell like fucking Satan hates them and like they're just like what are you guys fucking with the humans again I'm sorry dad <laughs> they just found the one room that Satan can't see and they're like if we just hang out here I mean we don't gotta do shit they're the two laziest demons and they're basically just playing <laughs> Xbox which is just fucking with these two mortals that keep getting reincarnated over and over oh, like shit. now make one of them eat shit 
Yeah, absolutely. Like, <laughs> tell him the next initiation, he has to eat his own shit and fuck these goats. Yeah. Oh, that's nice one, dude. Nice, nice uh, touch there, dude. Just uh, fuck the goats. Should, absolutely. Should we, should we have him eat goat shit? What the fuck is wrong with you? My God. You had to take it there, didn't you? So, I want to note that in the in the Black Pil- Pilgrimage, which is the first part of the Book of Antichrist, Parsons compares himself to several infamous figures from the past. One of them being Simon Magus, Gillies Del Ritz, which was a satanic uh, witchcraft serial killer of uh, of back then, and he supposedly had a, a contract with Satan with the devil, and the devil he was on the devil's payroll. Was it that one, or was it the one of Joan of Arc? Wait, what was this dude's name? Gillies Del Ritz. Gillies Del Ritz. I think this is the one with Joan of Arc. I may I may have them mixed up, because you know which one I'm talking about: the satanic serial killer. No, so I, I when you say satanic serial killer, I am harking back to the episode Tom and I did on Zicham yes. and Pita Nias. How do you uh, how do you spell that? Never mind. It's uh, G I L L E S De Rise uh, D E R A I S. Got it. And he he was the like the right hand man for Joan of Arc, which he was he was supposedly oh, accused. Kids. Yeah, he was accused of killing a bunch of kids. Okay, so. Mind you, it's also Bluebeard. Yes, Parsons is comparing himself to this. But what was the what was the the serial killer? The one that you did it had, it had a similar Peter name. Peter Nears, who was also a black magician ah. uh, and carried a uh, carried a leather pouch full of baby pots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I'm getting them two mixed up. But either way, this Gilles de Ritz was a piece of shit too, mm-hmm. which supposedly he was raping kids and killing them and like doing horrific shit. I mean, using your imagination. So Parsons in this. In this essay, he's comparing himself to Simon Magus, which we know who that is. Gillis de Ritz, which is uh, Joan of Arc's right-hand man uh, at, at one point. Uh, Francis Hepburn, Earl Bothwell, which I don't know who the fuck that is. And Count Galist- uh, Cagliostro, okay, which... Keg- yeah, believe- Cagliostro. Yeah, yeah. Cagliostro. Uh, Apparently, he not- was like a magician or some shit. Yeah, that's that name's been used in pop culture a fuck ton, too. He was like- with... Um, the guy who would reincarnate himself over and over again. What was his name? His name is escaping me. Uh, the famous magician, bro. That he said that he re- reinvented himself a bunch of times. At Edward Edward Casey? No, not Edward Casey. What the fuck's wrong with me, dog? Hold on, bro. Edward Casey was a serial killer, wasn't he? <laughs> not, Ed, not Edward Kelly, right? No, not Edward Kelly. Here, I got it. Hold on. Uh, uh, he was an occultist, and he was an associated with... Uh. Anyways, this guy was a fucking piece of shit, bro. <laughs> a if Parsons nutter, if you will. Yeah, if Par- it's kind of hard to read with these on. If Parsons was associating himself with it, he was probably a piece of shit. Okay, and I I want to figure out the name of that one guy that I that I told you about. I don't believe it was Ed- Edward Casey. It was Edward. Man, he was like a median, and they said that he was like reincarnated himself a bunch of times. Like where Casey was a clairvoyance, but there was somebody else. Anyways, that's the story besides sounds the point. familiar, but the name is escaping me. Do you think? Do you think uh, a lot of the the Parsons was just because he was going through his uh, his second separation, and he's like, no, I'm having a midlife crisis, and I'm even darker and edgier than I am. <laughs> Yeah, he's like, you think you're fucking edgy, Gillis Dorritz? Well, I, I'm more edgy than you, bro. <laughs> like, like, he's, like, like he's just walking around. He's like, I don't know what she sees in Hubbard. I'll kill Hubbard. I killed kids all the time. Ah, yeah. ah, just stomping around in his room, trying to so, hype himself up. He 
compares himself to some fucked up people in history mm -hmm. that did some fucked up shit. Yeah. Says a lot about his personality and his psyche to begin with that he would yeah. even, you know, those people would emotionally resonate with him and that would be something that he would look to as, you know, a hero. Yes, yes, or, or not even a hero, but like, like an, an idol, not, not an idol either, but uh, I don't know, a role model or a uh, another part of his personality that he, he sees him. Sure. Place. I mean, yeah, just a role model and a fucking medieval serial killer that raped and killed kids. I mean, sure. I mean, whatever I mean, it, floats your boat. That's how a lot of true crime people are now. I I, I hate to I hate to bring yeah. up that stereotype, but there yeah. there are a fair number of uh, women and men out there that are like, oh, they're dreamy. It's like they are a bloodthirsty murderer, and you're an idiot. Yeah, absolutely. And in this work, the the Black Pilgrimage, he refers to Babylon as Hilarion. The name comes from one of the Ma Mahatmas or ascended masters of Theosophy, uh, Hilarion Smerdis who was to have been the angel who dictated the book of Revelation to John. And we all know who that is. And the conspiracy is that this Hilarion was actually Hillary Clinton because she was born around this year. <laughs> well, yeah, th there, that goes into the whole, uh, yeah, Hillary Hillary Clinton actually being the, the descendant of Aleister Crowley. Yes, and we do not know why he referred to Babylon by this name, but Cameron would choose this as her magical name later on. And she went to go and do, she, she went on to do a bunch of fucked up shit. And the Israelite government would, would go on to recruit Parsons to help the, with the construction of explosive plants and development of rockets and other arrangements, which Parsons would design, build and operate. He would have to relocate to Israel for this. And there was some pushback from the FBI because, as you can imagine, there is, you know, it's a time of war. They don't want other countries. They were a new ally. They don't want, you know, uh, people figuring out their secrets. And this is J. Edgar Hoover-led FBI times. So, mm. I mean, uh, not good times for most people. Since he was still under investigation for espionage, after a year and four months of investigation, the board would pull his clearance for it to never be reinstated again parsons and cameron would eventually reunite after being separated for some time they plan a trip to mexico to quote test and an explosive more powerful than anything yet invented quoted by filmmaker Ren renate drucks who was close to cameron and she lived with him for some time after parsons death and here as we approach the end parsons death and beyond 1952 on Tuesday, June 17th, 1952, at 5.08 p.m., Parsons would set off an explosion that would be heard as far as a mile away, and he was at the center of it. As flames consumed Parsons, predicted by Babylon, he would have his right forearm blown completely off. The blast broke his other arm, both legs, left a gaping hole in his jaw and shredded his shoes. I had to put that in there. Shredded his fucking Nikes. It just shredded them to smithereens, okay? That's a really common thing with explosion, uh, explosions and shit. They said that a lot of the time it happens, like when you had suicide bombers in the Middle East, they would be literally blown out of their shoes. Just pull the fucking Nike, the Jordans right off your fucking feet. Yep. <laughs> well, it's like that dude that got into the, uh, that, that or the, the dude that became a stain on the, the pavement in California a couple months ago, I want to say. Was on that hundred and thirty mile an hour motorcycle chase. Oh shit! They said that he he went right out of his fucking shoes and his pants. Oh, I think yeah, I think I might have seen that. Wow, that was crazy. that was that was fucked up. 
Parsons would survive and was still conscious when the paramedics showed off. The blast blew off the stable doors from their hinges, knocked over two walls, and tore a hole in the floor. Smaller doors and windows were blown from their frames, and two greenhouses 25 feet away were shattered. A grand piano in the house was shifted enough to break one of its legs. Windows on the houses next door were broken. One of the residents upstairs was, quote-unquote, lifted off the couch by the violent blast. So you imagine he was, like on the, he was talking on the phone and just like, boom, like, what the fuck was that? What like, just happened? Parsons was coherent enough to give instructions as he was loaded into the ambulance. He would be taken to Huntington Memorial Hospital where he would die at 5.45 p.m. In March 1946, Parsons wrote that, quote-unquote, in that day, the manifestation of Babylon, my work would be accomplished, and I shall be blown away upon the breath of the Father. According to John Bluth, Parsons' last words were, I wasn't done. His mother would commit suicide hours after hearing this news. She would overdose on sleeping pills. Which were the- ones that the doctor called in to make sure she calmed down because she was fucking hysterical. <laughs> She committed suicide just hours after hearing that news. So, mm-hmm. again, you can see what's kind of weird there. The luggage they would be taking to Mexico was found in the hallway at his mother's house. Police during the investigation allegedly found numerous amounts of explosives at the house, enough to, quote-unquote, blow up half the block. There was mercury underneath the floorboards. It was like mercury floor, fluoride or some shit like that. Uh, just a bunch of uh, miscellaneous information. Well, he was there- building stuff for uh, for Hollywood Studios. Mm-hmm. And apparently, Special like, effects. the... the- the official story was that right before he was set to leave with Betty, because Betty comes back, or not Betty, uh, his third wife. It was uh, or second wife. Cameron. Cameron. Cameron comes back and uh, basically, like, after Hubbard ditches her ass, and um, they uh, they were set to go to Mexico, where they were going to either start a new life or they were going on a long vacation to try and reconnect or whatever. There was also some magical uh, stuff going on down there. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, he got a call, and Holly, uh, whatever studio he was working for at the time, basically asked him to make a uh, a batch of high explosives in a rush. Yeah, so a rush uh, order, right? And he he primarily was making, from my understanding, he was making like you know pyrotechnics for movies and stuff. But I guess he, they had him make a lot of squibs. So for uh, mm. for people that that aren't big movie people, a squib is a small explosive device put under the shirt, which before the age of digital effects mimicked gunshots. Mm. That's the thing that explodes, and you see the little blood drip down and stuff. It's just a little oh. tiny explosive with a blood packet, and they hurt like a motherfucker. Really? It feels worse than a paintball. There is various conspiracies regarding Parsons' death. Some rule it off as an accident, others murder, and some suicide. Nonetheless, there are some discrepancies as to how he died. Some believe since he was using... Since he was just a handling dangerous explosive, there was no way he could have dropped them, causing his death. How some people, oh, his hands were sweaty, and he just dropped it, and boom. You know what I mean? Like So no. Parsons was known to sweat a lot, and mm-hmm. it should be noted that he didn't have Erlmeyer flasks or beakers or any of that shit. He was using a coffee can coffee to mix cans, this yeah. chemical. So, I mean, re- remember, Parsons was unorthodox. And, yes, he was, mm-hmm. like, uh, many people that, that worked with him back in the early days uh, were, like, he was very meticulous and was always very safe. It's like, yes, that's true, but this is well after Parsons got into heavy drugs. Yes. So his nerves aren't nearly as steady. You they know, found you, a syringe of morphine, too, on the scene. Well, I don't know if they found a syringe with morphine. From what I had read, they found a bunch of syringes that were just kind of there. And they weren't sure whether or not it was for drug use or if he was using it to inject 
like nitro or something into explosives or what have you. Mm. But there were definitely there was definitely, you know, syringes found, and and we know that Parsons loved drugs and used them in his magical working. So I wouldn't I wouldn't discredit it or discount that it, it's a it's a possibility. Some there was some fuckery afoot. We can agree on that. Yeah, I tried looking up uh, an autopsy because that was my curiosity too. So I was like, I wonder, but I, there's no information that I can find on an mm. autopsy done on Parsons. Interesting. So. One of the officers noted that the explosion happened behind Parsons, ruling out the possibility that it was an accident and that he had actually dropped the can of, of, of materials causing the explosion. So Cameron said that the explosion had occurred beneath the floorboards, lifting them up, leading to the possibility that explosives had been planted there by someone, maybe someone trying to get revenge. Note that he had put those corrupt cops in jail for killing someone with a car bomb one of which had been released a little time prior to this explosion happening, this being Captain Kennedy uh, or Kennet. Cameron believed he was to blame. And the police concluded it was an accident due to the mishandling of explosives. Parsons' death was officially ruled by the coroner after an autopsy as accidental and attributed to multiple injuries of the entire body. Something that was allegedly found inside Parsons' trailer on the premises was an odd, bizarre, fairly big box decorated with snakes and dragons. This box was said to have contained home movies of Parsons and his mother having sex with each other and her big dog, the big dog that had made it difficult for police to attend to her suicide scene and was shot in the head in the process. Oh, Some fuck. dark, fucked up shit right yeah. there. Okay? And what did we learn? Cops love shooting dogs. And, and black people. Sorry. Well, obviously. <laughs> so that goes without saying. <laughs> during an interview, filmmaker Renee Drooks stated that I have every reason to believe that Jack Parsons was working on some very strange experiments trying to create what the old alchemist called the homunculus, a tiny artificial man with magical powers. I think that's what he was working on when the accident happened. And Dirksa was apparently Michael Hoffman's source of this statement in his Apocalypse Culture book, where he writes, In 1952, Parsons was blown up in what is officially described as an accident, but which others have said was a homunculus experiment that went bananas. Shout out to Michael Hoffman. And adding fuel to the fire, if you will, Kenneth Grant writes that the working began just prior to the wave of unexplained aerial phenomenon now recalled as the Great Flying Saucer Flap. Parsons opened a door and something flew in similar to what CERN is doing. And they say that since they had never finished the ritual that uh, they opened up a portal to another dimension. This is around the time of Roswell. And ever since you've had a bunch of UFO encounters. Now, Francis King mentions that Parsons felt flying saucers would quote unquote, would play a part in converting the world to Crowleyanity. And Cameron would later, would later go on to become obsessed with flying saucers and claim they were not high tech, but rather a restoration of elemental powers. Cameron would also go on to play both the Scarlet Woman and Kali, the Hindu goddess of destruction in front of CERN, okay, in front of CERN, in Kenneth Anger's short film. And these are people involved with the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, and all the satanic shit that they were Ken doing. Yeah, Kenneth Anger is the satanic director. Yes, he wrote yes. Lucifer Rising. Yes, and is that the one with uh, with Lucifer Satan? Yep, and on the his big chest? rainbow letters. I actually have a uh, I have a really good Kenneth Anger bi uh, biography somewhere in my my collection. I haven't I haven't cracked it open yet, but I found it at a thrift store and was like, oh shit. So, 
That was Jack Parsons. This took a. I told you it was about. It was going to be about two hours. Yeah, you said about two and, hours. We got two thirty in there. So. And I think it, I think it went great. I I wanted to get into further detail regarding Cameron, but I'm going to leave that for the live stream on the Interverse podcast on April seventh at nine p.m. Eastern time. Make sure to check that out. Make sure to check me out on there. I'm going to be introducing uh, a roundtable of people. And I set a topic, which they all research. We've been researching it for the last about month and a half. And I have a lot of bright minds in there who are very excited to present what they have found. This will be a compendium, if you will, uh, before that episode. So you can get a feel as to what Parsons was like, what his whole life was like, what the Babylon working was about what the Anakian magic, Crowley, all that thing, all those things. And I wanted to present it in a digestible Manner, which I think this went great, was an awesome episode. Yeah. Uh, definitely one for the books. And you were great, Anton. So thank you for those that have made it this far. One more time for the listeners. Anton, where can they find your work and look you up? Uh, check us out on Strange Brew, which I, uh, you know, Tom, Tom and, and Juan and Billy and I all, all do uh, in, in rotation, I'm sure. Uh, I'm HP Shovecraft on Instagram, Invader Daggett underscore TTV on Twitch. Come hang out and, uh, you know, chill in the stream. Uh, if you play Dead by Daylight, hit me up and we'll, uh, we'll play together. Awesome. Make sure to check me out on all social media platforms at the one one podcast, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, rockfin.com slash the one one podcast, patreon.com slash the one one podcast, and join the Telegram. Uh, the Telegram is in my link in the bio of my Instagram. I think it's like dot slash whatever the fuck. However, however you get on Telegram, the one-on-one podcast. Join us there. Got a little group of people going there. People give feedback on the show. Uh, you can throw ideas my way, whatever I want to hear from you guys. So thank you so much. Thank you, Anton. This Hell was yeah, fucking man. great. It's, it's a blast as always, dude. Literally, it was a blast as always. Uh, <laughs> it was an accidental pun, just like Jack's accidental death. <laughs> Next, we will probably get into Crowley, because I did a lot of research on him while researching this, so I, I have a base for that episode, and we'll do a deep dive on Crowley. I look Maybe after to that, it. we can do L. Ron Hubbard or somebody else. Uh, you do know. Hubbard, then do LeVay after that. Yeah, we'll figure it out, but thank you, everybody, for sticking around this long. Appreciate you guys. Stay strange. Don't be a piece of shit. Love each other. And until next time. Stop summoning demons. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... 
place a $5 wager on any sport, you'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.